Today, guys, I'm excited about this study because um, we're getting into a book that is often overlooked and ignored for a couple of different reasons. And the most obvious reason is, well, it's a very, very difficult book to understand. But as I said in prayer, the aim of the book of Revelation, as you look through it and read through it, it's, it's to prepare our hearts and our minds for the end. How many of you guys know the end is near? And people have been saying that for 2,000 years, but we're, we're closer now than we've ever been uh, to the end. And so the end, the end is coming. And so the aim of this book is to prepare our hearts and our minds to, as we live in these last days. And so today what I'm going to do is, I know some of you are here when I preached um, this last summer, and this stuff can't really be preached. Y'all understand the difference between preaching and teaching? Okay, so I'm going to be energetic, and I'm going to be as passionate as I can be and as engaging as I can be. But today, I'm not going to share a lot of stories and a lot of anecdotes, and I'm not going to try to be funny at all. Uh, there may be some parts that are funny, but um, really, this is so about the text of Scripture. We're going to read so many Scriptures today, it might just blow your mind. And how many of y'all know, when you read the Word of God, that's really what you need. You don't need my jokes and you don't need my stories. Those can help, but what we need is the Word. But I just want to prepare you guys at the outset. <laughs> we're we're going to read a, a ton of Scripture today as, as we get into this. So if you have your notes, go ahead, and if you're not already there, go to the front page. You're probably flipping through, seeing where we're going to go. Just stick one page at a time. If you go all the way through, it could look a little overwhelming. But, but here on the very first page, uh, under approaching the study, Roman numeral one, we are going to get into some of the reasons of why we hate <laughs> the book of Revelation. There are people that hate this book. Not really, but you understand what I mean. They're like, I'll oh, read it, and I just, I don't like it. I just don't like that stuff. It's too hard to understand. But there are a couple of reasons. First of all, and I already mentioned this, number one, how many of y'all know it's just hard to understand? It's just difficult to understand. And when we get into this book and we read through it, you're going to see the symbolism, the, uh, the imagery in this book, that as you read it, it's like, what does that mean? Why, why can't this just be clear? Why can't this just be plain? Uh, on top of that, there have been so many books that have been written about the book of Revelation over the course of time. There are so many different opinions. Some of you probably read some of those books, and you read this book, then you read another book, and they had different ideas, different interpretations, and then you read the book, and you're like, okay, now I've got a different interpretation, and it can just be confusing, and you're like, ah, this is just difficult to grasp. Number two, a second reason why we hate the book of Revelation is that it contains disturbing themes and content. Disturbing themes and content. For example, the end of the world. <laughs> When I, when I first read uh, the book of Revelation years and years ago, and, and honestly, I read parts of it as an unbeliever, and it scared the you-know-what into me, the something out of me, the heaven into me, right? Uh, I read it, I'm like, what? And, and, and I read about the, the, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, and I read about the bloodshed, and um, the, the treading out of the, the wine press, the fury of the wrath of God. I'm like, gosh, I'm just going to stick to John 3.16, y'all. How many of y'all? Yeah. And so I'm like, okay, I'll get to you later, John, in the book of Revelation. And, of course, I came back to it. But it, it's disturbing. It really is disturbing. And when you read through Scripture, there are some very disturbing things in the Bible. 
There's rape, there's murder, there's judgment. They're all the things that, well, we hate, right? And some people say, well, I don't believe that the Bible is that holy. I don't really think it's from God because it has all that bad stuff in it. And I'm like, well, okay, it, it has bad stuff in it, not because of God, but because, well, we're in it, right? It's, it's man's fault, not God's fault. It's our doing, it's our sin that we got to work out. And how many of y'all know, we can be very disturbing people. And if you don't believe me, well, don't just look at your actions. Look at what you think, right? Sometimes what we think, it can be very disturbing. So nonetheless, when you get into the book, you read the content. You're like, what? This is very disturbing. Number three, it seems impractical. Because it's hard to understand, because it's disturbing, because we want to avoid it, therefore we read through and we're like, okay, I don't know what to do with any of this except be afraid, you know, or be confused. How many of y'all know when you're confused, you can't really do much? And the aim of all biblical preaching and teaching is to bring clarity. And when you have clarity, there's movement, right? You can't move in the right direction until you have clarity. And because we lack clarity, oftentimes we lack movement. And so the book seems impractical. Now, letter B, why we love the book of Revelation, right, Jennings? This is, this is us right here. This is why we Love it. First of all, we identify with its overall message. And I know this is true because as I close worship, I said in the end, the whole point of the book is we win and y'all went nuts. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And what that tells me is that you, you get it. You get the overall message. You're like, I don't know what that means. I don't know what that means. But I know what that means. Jesus is coming back and he's going to kick some booty. Come on, somebody. And, and, and that's the story we're going to follow today. So we identify with that. Like we, we want to win. Maybe you lost in life in some other area. Maybe you were considered a loser before. How many of you know, when you come to Jesus, he makes all things new. And now you're a winner. No matter where you came from, no matter where you've been, he makes all things new. He makes you into a winner. Come on, somebody. Come on, somebody say amen to that. So it, number two, provides an optimistic picture of the end of history. These logically flow together. Good news, good news. Y'all know what the good news of the gospel is? That's kind of redundant, but did y'all know that gospel literally means good news? In, in the Greek, euangelion, it's this idea of a runner from basically leaving the battlefield after a battle has been won, and he pulls up his, his, his clothes, so to speak, his cloak, and he begins to run as fast as he can back into home territory to declare that the battle is over, that victory has been won. That's what euangelion means. Now think about what that means for Jesus. Think about what that means for Paul and you, that because Jesus triumphed on the cross, and that's a death, but it was a triumph. How many of y'all know it was on the cross where he defeated death? By death, he defeated death. He rose back to life, and then he gives us this great message, and what do we do? Well, we, we run, so to speak, to culture. We run to our neighbors. We run through this community, letting people know that the battle really is over as far as God's concerned. The victory has been won, and that is the good news. No matter how dark or desperate or sinful things seem, that there's victory in Jesus Christ. That's the good news that we proclaim. So we love that. It's optimistic. We win. Number three, it reminds us to live with the end in mind. How many of y'all sometimes get lost in the details of life? Come on, stay-at-home moms or just moms. <laughs> Working moms, stay-at-home moms. You know, all, you, you're thinking about a lot of different things, right? Uh, feeding babies and wiping rear ends and taking care of your man and 
all the things that happen at home, at work, men too, you're busy. We're thinking about what's happening in front of us like now. And sometimes, I mean, someone will ask me, hey, what are you doing next week? And I'm like, I have no idea. I'm just trying to get through the day. How many of y'all know what I'm yeah, I'm just trying to get through this week. I'll, I'll talk about that later. I'll put things on my calendar, but a lot of times it's like, wow, I don't have any idea. And so we get bogged down in what's here in front of us, and we lose sight of what's up ahead of us. Anybody ever do that? Yeah. Well, that's very easy to do, and when you read the book of Revelation, it's John, the apostle, giving us this bigger perspective, this broader perspective of what's going to take place in the end. What's going to happen in the end? Well, I've said we win, and I'm going to explain what that means today. But in the end, here's one that usually doesn't get a lot of applause because it's a heavy concept. We're all going to stand before God in judgment. How many of y'all looking forward to that day? <laughs> well, you know what? There is a sense in which we should look forward to that day because we're clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. We don't go based on our good deeds. We go based on Jesus' good deeds. So there is a sense of we have confidence, right? On the other hand, we don't want to go with a glib or um, in, in a whimsical manner with just flippantly, I'm going to the throne of God. How many of y'all know you don't just go to the throne of God? You go with respect, and we're going to stand before God with a sense of awe and wonder. But that's for us. But what about the rest of the world that doesn't believe? It's called the day of the Lord. The day you got saved, you could call that the day of the Lord. The day that the Lord visited you. The day that the Lord saved you. That's the day of the Lord. It's a good day, right? Today's a good day. It's the day the Lord has made. Let's rejoice and be glad. Well, there's another day of the Lord that's coming for the whole world. And as we're going to see today, we're going to stand before God in judgment. And that day, let's say for unbelievers, that day is going to be a very dreadful day. So what does that mean for me? It means that I know on that day I'm going to stand before Jesus, righteous, holy, forgiven, etc. But... It makes me live now very carefully, very wisely, and very righteously. Knowing that, watch this, you can't fight today's battles with yesterday's faith. You have to get up every day and have new faith. you got to have the word of, watch this, the word of God from yesterday. A lot of times it won't help you for the issues of today. You need word for today, a new word today. You need new faith every day that you get up to fight the battles that are right ahead of you and along the way. So I'm living wisely knowing that I'm going to stand before God. I don't want to squander what's been given to me. I'm going to have to give an account, even as a believer, for every careless word I say. Someone say, "Uh uh-oh. Yeah. We're righteous and holy, and we stand before God in that manner, but we're still going to have to give an account. So I'm careful about how I live as that day approaches. Now, how to approach the book of Revelation, letter C. First of all, let me ask you all, who here has, has studied the book of Revelation at any real depth? Anybody? Okay. Well, as you approach this book, I recommend that no matter how long you've studied it and read it, you need to approach it with deep humility. Deep, everybody say deep. deep, deep, great humility. And I say that not to mean that you approach it and say, well, I don't know what it means, and that's humble. No, I say you approach it, you do the work, you try to work through the details, but you hold your conclusions fairly loosely, okay? That there are people, now there are certain things that are, it's like I'm holding on to this tightly, and that's, that's good about certain aspects of the book. But there are certain details that, I can get up and I'm gonna, I can give you my view, and I'm really following the view of D.A. Carson and William Mounts and some other scholars. I just stand on, 
on their shoulders, but somebody else could come around, and I can list several prominent New Testament scholars that will give you a completely different interpretation of the book. Now, that can be somewhat discouraging, can it? It can be. But with that in mind, knowing that people have wrestled over this book literally for 2,000 years, since it was written in 95 AD, uh, that because of that, it makes me say, okay, I want to get to the truth. I want to find out what it means. But, but I want to approach this not dogmatically, not it means this, right? And there are people like that. There are churches that start, and I would say end very quickly, because this is our view of the end times. And that's all they can think about. And it's like that view dominates everything else instead of Jesus dominating everything else. Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and everything else will be added. Put Jesus at the center. And of course this book is important. It's about Jesus. But what it means and what your opinion is about it are two separate things. Okay? Hopefully they can come together. Your view and the truth can coalesce and become one. But along the way, let's just approach it with humility and not be dogmatic about one particular interpretation. Okay? Number two, with great patience. I'm asking you to, to take your time to work through this book. If, if today is the, the first time you've been exposed to anything in this book, well, y'all, welcome to the journey. Welcome to the journey. And just give yourself a lifetime of working through the very difficult details in this book. Number three, I want you to read this book with Jesus as the focus. With Jesus as the focus. Not the beast, not the dragon, um, not any of the characters reported within, but, but that is other characters. But I want you to focus in on Jesus. He is the point of this book. Now, letter D. The blessing of Revelation. The blessing of this book. Although the book of Revelation pertains to things that are to come, the one who reads and obeys it will experience immediate blessing. You see that? It's about things that are to come, but as you read it and obey it, you get blessed now, right, by, by understanding those things. Revelation 1.3 says this. Blessed is the one who reads aloud. Notice that? Reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and keep what is written in it for the time is what? For the time is near. Revelation 22 verse 7. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Now, number two, Revelation was written to... Do a couple of things, several things actually. First, inform you, equip you, and prepare the church for the tribulation that, well, to some extent is, but it is, that is to come, that lies ahead. Okay? For example, Jesus wants you, as you read through this book, to read the book, understand the book as best you can, so that you can be bold. How many of y'all know God wants you to be a bold witness, not going, I, I, think, I think that Jesus is the only way I think this? No, though you don't understand everything in the book of Revelation, Jesus does want you to understand many things about who he is, about who God is, how salvation occurs, and more. And as, as culture continues to shift away from, from, from scriptural foundations, how many of y'all know it's a moment for us to stand fast? As culture shifts, we have to stand fast and say, I don't care what the world says. Here's what the timeless word of God says. He wants you to be bold. 
not wavering, but bold and courageous. Jesus, number two, wants you to be assured, not living in fear. That yes, there are some dreadful, horrible things that are going to come upon the earth. It's happening right now. How many of y'all know? It's great here. It's foggy out, but it's, it's great in Jennings this morning. How many of y'all know it's not great in other parts of the world? From natural disasters, calamities, and, I mean, name it. We're just, well, watch the news or don't. I, it's going to be depressing. But things are good here for now. But it might not be that way forever. And so we have to be prepared. But God wants us to be assured no matter what comes our way. Lastly, under this letter, uh, letter D, Jesus wants you to have clarity. Clarity. Now, before I get into the meat of the book, let me, let me give you guys something that I believe, if you get this, will really help you understand the whole Bible. Can I do that in like two minutes? Say yes. Because I'm going to do it anyway. I, just, I, just wanna, I want your buy-in. Let me give you four components that if you get these four components, you will sound like geniuses. You're, you guys, you know, you're the smartest people in Jennings right here. You know, you know that? Okay. Well, you're going to go to a whole other level when I give you these four simple components. And by the way, simple doesn't always mean shallow. Simple means that all the complex parts have been broken down. It means you really understand it, right? So this is simple, but it's certainly not shallow. But watch how this works. When you pick up the Bible and you, you look at this and you're like, ah, what does this mean? Well, you know the gist of it, but you go to Ezekiel or you go into parts of Ezra. Come on, how many of y'all have ever gotten lost in the book of Leviticus? And you're like, okay, let's go to John 3.16 again. You know, yeah. And so I'm like, what? Well, maybe I'll do an intensive on the book of Leviticus. I mean, man, there's some great stuff in that book. Anyway, when you look at it, you're like, convince me. That's the next intensive. Maybe I will uh, down the road. But when you look at this book, there's so, much, there's so many complicated details. But watch this. Write this down. There are four components that if you begin in Genesis and work all the way through to the book of Revelation, there are four components, four pillars of Scripture that if you understand these, you'll understand everything else. Okay? Here's what they are. First of all, creation. Will you say these with me? Creation. Creation. Fall. Fall. Redemption. Redemption. And restoration. Creation. Fall. Redemption. Restoration. These are the four pillars of Scripture. And it begins with Genesis 1 and 2. What happened in Genesis 1 and 2? What, what, what does the Bible report about there? Well, what? Creation, right? God created everything good, right? Now track with me. If you get this, Revelation will make a lot of sense to you. Creation, everything's good. Then there's the what in Genesis 3? The fall. Everything got messed up. But then when you read through, you get to the Gospels and to the New Testament, it's redemption and then finally restoration. You see these themes reported all the way from beginning all the way to the end of Scripture, even within books. God creates him, uh, for himself a people. Those people fall. They do something stupid. That's us, by the way. And then he, he, he redeems us, and then he restores us. That's the cycle from the beginning of human history all the way to the very end. In Genesis 3, paradise was lost. But in Revelation 21 and 22, paradise is going to be restored. And as I'm going to show you all today, uh, in about three hours uh, from now, that um, 
the end goal of Christianity is not for us to go to heaven, but for heaven to come down here to the earth. Now, we're, now, trust me, if I were to pass right now, my spirit would be with the Lord. Yours would as well. How many of y'all are uh, praying for a delay in that? Uh, you don't want to go right now because God has a mission for you, right? Of course, it's better to be there, but we have a mission here. But in the end, the aim is not to fly away and go sit on a cloud somewhere. I'm going to show you today from the book of Revelation, the aim is for heaven to come down and invade the earth. How did you pray as a Catholic? How do you pray now? Our Father who art in how would be your, your kingdom, your will be done as it is? You see, you pray that way, and it's God, let whatever is happening up there, which is worship, which is absolute obedience by the angels, which is all those great things, let whatever is taking place up there come and manifest down here. You see that? And see, it's, it's pulling the glory of heaven and, and asking God for it to manifest here in the earth. Now, that is seen in part now. But it's going to be the whole shebang, kaboom, whatever you want to call it. At the end of history, heaven is literally going to come down, and everything is going to be renewed down here at this level. Now, I'm getting ahead of myself. We could end right there. Y'all could go home. But we're not. We're going to stay three more hours at least. But creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Every book that you read along the way, if you get these four components— and read those books in a lot of those components, and those components in a lot of the smaller parts, you will get a full, robust picture of what God's doing in the Bible and what he said. All right? Now, with that said, introduction to the book. Let's get into it now. Most scholars, under authorship here, most scholars believe that the Apostle John wrote the book of Revelation, not Revelations with, a, with an S, but just Revelation, from the island of Patmos, which is a small island off the west coast of Asia Minor. I'm going to have a map for you in just a second. Uh, on the next page, during a time of persecution around the year 95 or perhaps 96 A.D. Now, just for your information, Jesus died, or some debate on this, it's either 30 A.D. or 33 A.D., so that gives you a reference point here uh, of what we're talking about. But near the end of the first century, in this book, John addresses seven churches in the Roman province of Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey if you want to pull out your modern-day map and kind of get an idea here of the general area. Now, so you have a context of what's going on in John's own day. Let me give you guys a good rule of how to interpret the Bible. Now, this is going to take some work. You all, you all ready? You've got to understand what was going on in the author's day. You've got to understand that context before you come to your own context today. You, you can't take what was said then and immediately go to today. You've got to find out what it meant then, and when you find out what was going on then, then you can understand how it applies today. Does that make sense? A lot of times we'll take a passage and we'll woo, push, drop it into the 21st century, and we'll say, well, it means this. Well, it could. It might, but the rule of interpretation is you want to begin with the author. You want to start with him, see what he has to say, and try to figure out what the original audience, what, what they heard, and what it meant to them when it was spoken, all right? In John's own day, worship of the emperor was taking place, and Emperor uh, Domitian was ruling at the time when John wrote, and as we're going to read here in Revelation 1-9, it says, I, John, your brother and partner, look at this, in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, look at this, 
was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. You see, because John did not worship the emperor, because John did not worship anyone but Jesus, he paid the price. Now, in Rome, there was the Lord, kurios in Greek, Lord, which meant sovereign ruler. And that was the, the Caesar, the emperor of the day, that you had to uh, swear allegiance to him, burn incense to the leader of Rome. And the leader of Rome, and just Rome overall, the, the, the cultural climate was such that you, you could worship any god that you wanted to worship, as long as you got your priorities right, as long as the, as the Roman leader was at the top, and the Roman gods were at the top. But even then, you could have a hierarchy underneath those gods of and I would say a, a, a depth chart, if you will, that would go from top down to bottom. You could worship anybody you want. But here, the, the, the Christians come along, and the Christians are like, ah, okay, well, we might esteem the emperor, we might honor the emperor and the Caesars, but Jesus says that he's Lord, and that you might claim to be Lord, but, 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 but Jesus says that he's the sovereign one that he's the boss. So you see how this would create conflict. On one hand, culture is saying, you got to bow down to Caesar. On the other hand, God's saying, you have to bow down to me and worship me alone. Check it out, Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, 10 commandments, all through scripture. You worship one God. Well, there was this conflict. And John says that he was exiled. He was on the island of Patmos. Why? Well, because the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, because he refused to bow down to anyone but Jesus. And he paid the price for it. So he's in exile, and it was there where he's got this, he received this vision, this revelation that is, well, for us now, we call it the book of Revelation. Now, for a lot of people, you think, well, if I'm John, I got exiled, I'm out here by myself on an island. You've heard it said, man, I feel like I'm on an island. He's out on an island. If I'm him, I'm like, ah, I'm on an island, my ministry's over, you know, I stood for Jesus, but... I guess that's it, you know. But how many of y'all know if God has a purpose for you that you can be on an island in the middle of nowhere and God will still use you? Amen. And here we have John exiled, but he might have been away from those that he loved, but he was in the presence of God. And because he was in the presence of God, he received a vision from God. And today we're reading what he saw and what he heard because he was obedient. To Jesus. You see, obedience to Jesus put him in proximity to receive the words of Jesus that we now benefit from today. That's pretty awesome, huh? So that's the context. He wrote Revelation from this island. Now, genre. Genre. The, the book of Revelation is, well, it's, it's I would argue, uh, it's apocalyptic. The title, Revelation, comes from the Greek term apocalypsis. I have the transliteration and the, the Greek there, which means the unveiling of something hidden. The book is at the same time didactic, or it has teaching value, prophetic, and apocalyptic. So we don't want to just say that this book pertains to things that are to come. Yeah, it does, but it's trying to teach some lessons along the way. That's why we say it's didactic. It's teaching us some things. It's prophetic, speaking about what's to come, and it's apocalyptic in the sense that it's going to talk about the very end. 
In Revelation 1, 1 through 2, it says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him, John, to show, uh, God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Now, Revelation is first and foremost talk about this unveiling, it's first of all about the unveiling of Jesus and his glory. When I read this book now, page after page after page, I'm like, man, that's glory. Man, that's, that's the glory of God. That's, now, I, I know what I mean when I say glory. You know, we talk about the glory of God, but do we understand what that really means? If I were to ask you, and I, and I won't ask you to respond, but if I were to ask you, uh, what, what does glory mean to you? Well, that's kind of a church word, right? It's a Bible word. We probably know what it means, but we don't know how to really articulate it, right? Glory, glory. We're talking about the glory of Jesus. What does that mean? Well, the, the Greek term doxa is the term in English. It translates over to English as glory. And the word basically means importance or weightiness. So, you know, back at... In the old days, you know, someone would say, dude, that's heavy. <laughs> Y'all remember that? Uh, back to the future type language, 80s language. Man, that's heavy. We say, wow, that's really impressive. Man, that's really important. Well, that's just, uh, that's our way of saying, man, that's glorious. Now, we don't say that, right, uh, in those contexts, in the 80s and in day-to-day street language. But that's what we mean. Something's weighty. You read something or you see something. You go to a play and you you see the orchestra and the actors and all of it come together. Or you go stand in front and over the Grand Canyon and don't get too close to the edge. But as you're standing there, you're looking out and you see all that God has made. And what do you say to that? That is absolutely, I don't know about y'all, but I like to go to places that take my breath away. The people here are amazing in Louisiana, but... Uh, well, the aesthetics of it all, well, you need to go somewhere else, right? There's some beauty here too, but how many of y'all have ever been and you've seen the redwoods of California, you've stood over the Grand Canyon, you've been to some great vacation spot, even maybe you stood on the beaches of Destin and you've looked out and the waves are coming in and you see all that God's made. Of course, you can see that here too in different ways, but you look out and you're like, ah, oh, that's, that's, wow. Yeah, you have in different ways, in different times, in different places. When we talk about the revelation of Jesus' glory, we're talking about us seeing him as who he really is, in the fullness of who he really is. And y'all, when we see Jesus for who he really is, it will take our breath away. You see, Seeing his glory, seeing Jesus for who he is, his power, his dominion, his rule, his authority, understanding all that does something to me. It really does something to me. It, number one, it causes me to worship. Come on, we worship the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the God of all God. He is the ruler of the kings of the earth. He's our God. We worship, but it also motivates me to obey him when I see him for who he is because he's worthy to be obeyed. I could give a whole message on this. But the aim is to get you and me and our kids in this community not to fall in love with the rules and the commandments of the Word of God. Those are important. But the aim is for people's eyes to be open so that they can see what? The glory of God. 
the glory of Jesus and fall in love with him. And if they fall in love with him, if we fall in love with him, then the commandments will come pretty easily. But it's first God's glory. It's seeing him for who he is. So it's, it's seeing weighty things, important things about Jesus in his word. Number two, number next. Revelation is secondarily about the unveiling of God's plan in history, which, by the way, is glorious. Everything that he does, I'm like, man, God, only you could do that. How many of y'all read the Bible and like, God, only you could pull that off? Yeah. And even in your own life, as you read each other's lives, you study the history of their life, and you hear about all that God has done, the plan. You're like, man, only, only you could do that, Jesus. So it's primarily about his glory, but flowing from that secondarily about the unveiling of God's plan in history, and we worship him for who he is, but we praise him for what he's done. Bam, there's glory, there's worship, there's praise happening as we read through the book. Number three, Revelation points to Jesus' first coming, but also reveals vivid details about his second coming. You know, the first time Jesus came in approximately 5 B.C., he was born of the Virgin, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Y'all read it. Y'all know about it. And we read in the gospel accounts that Jesus came riding in on a donkey, gentle and lowly, humble. How many of y'all know Jesus was humble? Here's the king of the universe riding in on an animal that he created. The animal he created that he sustains is sustaining him as he rides into Jerusalem. What? The song says, our God is great because Jesus breathed the very air that his breath sustains. I mean, that'll blow your mind. That Mary's womb sustained Jesus while Jesus was in her womb. But at the same time, Hebrews 1 says that Jesus simultaneously upheld and continues to uphold all things by the power of his word. <laughs> what? Turn to your neighbor and say, What? I mean, that will blow your mind when you think about, I'm talking about nothing but sheer glory when you think about those concepts. The first time he came riding in lowly and humble, but the second time, you know, all the humility, okay, that, it's still there in him. But the purpose for the second coming is not to win friends and influence people. And I'm just giving you scripture today. There's going to be some hard truths. The, the second coming is all about him coming, riding in on a white horse with a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth to strike down the nations that have disobeyed him. So can we get this in balance? That Jesus is gracious, he's kind, he's merciful. And that always is the case with Jesus. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. But at the second coming, it's a different display of his attributes. The attribute of justice, the attribute of uh, divine judgment, those attributes will be displayed for all the world to see. And those who don't believe at that point will be judged. And, well, we'll get to the finality of things later. Now, as we get into the interpretive, the interpretive approaches to this book under letter C, I want to just lay these out for you because um, in one way or another, as you read different people, different scholars, even in your own study notes, um, they may not, a person may not come out and say, hey, I hold to this interpretive approach, but he will or she will fall into one of these camps under letter C. There are four. The first one's called this, um, the preterist approach. We have it up here for spelling purposes. The preterist approach. 
excuse me for drinking a lot of water, I woke up with a sore throat. The preterist approach, from the Latin word meaning past, says that everything predicted in the book of Revelation was fulfilled in the first century, specifically in the 70 A.D. destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. They take literally the word of the apostles that the events recorded must shortly come to pass. Now, some people date the book of Revelation, as we have, uh, in 95-ish A.D., but some people date it much earlier. And so um, a preterist is going to read the book of Revelation, and they're not going to look to things today so much, in some cases at all. They're going to stick to the first century, the time of Jesus leading all the way up to the end of the first century. Does that make sense? So early. Say that with me. Early, 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 early. The next is this, the historical approach. It says that Revelation is a survey of church and world history from the apostolic age until the end of time people who hold this view see history unfolding in its entirety through the various symbols in the book. By the way, it's my view. No, you can like it, you can hate it, you can reject it or accept it, but I'm not saying as we go through this that you have to adopt my view. I'm saying you read the text for yourself and you come up with what you think is the correct interpretation. But this is this is basically my approach, number two. But number three, there's the futurist approach that says that Revelation is a prophecy of the last days and, with the, ex, uh, with the exception of the first three chapters, is yet to be fulfilled. So, to come. Preterist, way back. Futurist, it's to come. And number four, the spiritual approach, sometimes called the idealist approach, says that Revelation is not prophecy at all, but rather a metaphorical representation of the struggle between good and evil that is relevant to people in every culture at any time. Does that make sense? They're just principles in there. It's a portrayal, they'll say, of the struggle between good and evil. And we are to look for principles of application in our own day to draw forth. Okay? Now, I was just sitting around one day, honestly, and I'm thinking, how can I give a good, simple chronology of the entire book? And here's what I came up with. Okay, Roman numeral three. Here are the major themes in the flow of the book. Now, of course, I don't expect you to get all this the first time I read it, but you can go back, and as you read through the book on your, in your own time, this is the logical flow. First of all, Jesus' commission for John to write. That happened in, John, uh, in uh, Revelation chapter 1. Next, Jesus' evaluation of the churches, which we're about to get into in chapters 2 and 3. Next, John's vision of heaven. Jesus' qualification to reclaim the earth. That's going to get real good when we read that. It's going to get real, real good for us as we talk through that. Next, the administration of Jesus' judgments, and you see the chapters there. The preservation of the saints from judgment. The ingestion of the word of God. The church's prophetic proclamation. Satan's strategic opposition. The final, the final administration of wrath. The destruction of the Antichrist and his army. The resurrection and rapture of believers. The thousand-year duration of the reign of Christ the final judgment and evaluation of all people before the throne, and finally the restoration of all things. Okay? That is the flow of the book. Okay? Highlighting the major components that are, that are recorded for us. Okay. Now, with that said, let's hop in to the book of Revelation in more detail. We're going to go about 20 minutes, and then we're going to take a break. Okay? Now, we know that the Apostle John wrote it, but 
Let's ask the question, where did he get the content from? Well, under Roman numeral four, interpreting the book. Letter A, Jesus' commission for John to write and Jesus' evaluation of the churches is recorded for us in the first three chapters. Listen to what John writes. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. That means in the Holy Spirit. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book. You see the command there? Write this down. And send it to the where? To the who? To the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Write this down. Send it to the churches. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. I guess so. (laughs) And on turning, I saw, look at this, seven golden lampstands. What is that? And in the midst of the lamp stands, one like a son of man, Daniel's son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. Picture this as we read. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. Circle that, seven stars. We've got seven golden lampstands, seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died. Who do you all think this is? (laughs) Obviously Jesus, huh? And behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Verse 19, Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. Verse 20, as for the mystery of the seven stars, what are the seven stars? Well, there's all this speculation, but it says it right here. (laughs) The seven stars that you saw in my right hand, the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So the stars represent what? Who? Angels, the lampstands represent what? That's right. And so there's an explanation for us here in the text. Write this down, and then this is going to go out. The Word of God is going to go out to these churches. Now notice right here at the outset, this was not written to us. This was written to these churches in the first century. Now, this was not written to us, but it was written for us. So as, I, as I'm reading, it's like I'm, I'm like, okay, I'm going to see what the Spirit had to say to these churches because how many of y'all know the Spirit's also speaking today? So he's saying some things through John's writings, through the Spirit to these churches, these seven churches, but I'm leaning in and I'm like, okay, Jesus, you're also walking around today, so to speak, through the churches in America, North America, South America, all over the world, and he's continuing to speak today. So I'm, I'm listening. Okay, wh- wh- what do you have to say? Now, because as I read through these churches, and we're not going to go through this in detail. I'm just going to highlight them. What you're going to see is that Jesus offers words to the spirit of commendation and correction. He gave churches commands, and he also promised them certain rewards. So isn't that good about Jesus? He's basically like this. In OSC Jennings terms, stop doing that, 
Why do y'all do that? Stop doing that. Thank you for, that was awesome. Keep doing that. Just like a good father. Isn't that what a father does? Hey, correction, you can't keep doing that. That's going to mess things up. But man, you're doing this. You're doing this so well. I can just hear the father's heart through the son imparted by the spirit to the churches. We all need correction, don't we? And by the way, don't take correction as rejection. Take correction as God's trying to make you better, not just for you, but for the people that he wants you to reach, right? And so that's really what's going on in these opening chapters. So what we see here is if you look at the map, I mean, like, if you had a letter and you had a FedEx truck, look at this. Well, you could start in Ephesus, right? And you could go west, north to Smyrna. Look at the route. You can take the route north and then come around over to the east and end in Laodicea. He's saying, take these and deliver them. Send these messages to all these different churches along the way. So do you see how the book opens? It's a concern for the churches then. Now, it applies to us today in a lot of different ways that we don't have a lot of time to get into. But let's go through this briefly. First of all, to the church in Ephesus. Well, they were commended for their perseverance. Man, y'all have stuck to it. You're faithful. Man, praise God for that. But they were criticized for forgetting their first love. Man, we can do that, huh? Why did you get saved? Why did you give your life to Jesus all those days, weeks, or months ago? Well, hopefully it was because you fell in love with Jesus because you knew Jesus was in love with you. And sometimes Christianity can get so complicated, can it? And we worship sometimes for the wrong reasons. We worship for what he's going to do and what he's done. We praise him for who he is and what he's going to do. But at the end of the day, all that's good and fine. But it's like we're going back to it's not Jesus about necessarily what you're going to do for me. I just I love you for who you are. I love you for who you are. If you never did another thing for me, God, you're good. Jesus, you're amazing. It's that affection that God wants us to have for his son. That's the first love. He's saying, go back to that. Remember when you, when you dated before you got engaged? Do you remember that pursuit? Hopefully it was there. <laughs> Hopefully you remember it. That pursuit. Come on, ladies. You remember how he pursued you? flowers. Come on, buying you clothes. I don't know if you did that, but I did that. I, I dated Kelly, my wife. She was in Austin. I was in Phoenix. I'd go online. I'd buy clothes. I'd ship her clothes. I'd go online uh, when we were dating. I, I, would, I would go and order food, and she'd come home, and it would be food waiting there for her. I would send flowers. I mean, I was in hot pursuit yeah. <laughs> of a hot woman. And then I got to keep that in front of me every day or at least regularly now as we're married now for 13 years, I've got to continue to, to do that. Isn't that the challenge? Yes. It's to continue to pursue, meant to pursue our wives. Well, that, that's what Jesus wants. Return to your first love. You know how you felt? Your affections, how alive they were? Return to that. Do that again. That's what he's saying. They were commanded to repent. And he said, if you don't repent, if you don't turn from sin, look at, look at what's going to happen. Your lampstand is going to be removed. Now, what's the lampstand? The church. He's basically saying, and this is the message for the church today, Jesus is long-suffering, and y'all know long-suffering means long-fused. How many many of you guys are glad he has a long fuse? I'm giving you time to repent. If you don't repent, if you don't turn, it's in modern-day vernacular, it's Jesus saying, I'm going to shut your church down. In church, this happens all the time to churches that become liberal, that are sinful, that are embracing of things that God hates. 
They thrive for a while. They're on the news, hey, championing this very liberal church that has no moral foundation, but they love everybody. What does that even mean? You can't love someone without a moral foundation, right? And, and God will give churches like that and people like that, which you, know, you talk about the church, that is the people, right? It's not the building. He gives those people time to repent. And if they don't, it's, y'all, I'm going to shut you down. <laughs> and how many of y'all know that's one of the most loving things that he could do for his church, which really isn't a church at all, if they've embraced sin without repentance. So that's, that's the first message here. It's repent. The church was orthodox in belief, but it lost its affection. He's calling them back. Number two, Smyrna. Uh, they were commended for being rich. That is spiritually. There was no uh, critical word that was delivered to them. And they were commanded to, well, continue to be faithful even unto death. We read in chapter 2 about the church of Pergamum. They were commended for being faithful. Criticized, though, for doctrinal compromise, for idolatry and sexual immorality. And the command was, repent, turn from that. Thyatira, in chapter 2, verses 18 through 29, commended for their love, faith, service, and endurance, but they were criticized for idolatry and sexual immorality. That is for blatant, outright, I'm living with someone who is not my husband or wife. I'm sleeping with someone, and I don't care what the pastor says. I don't care what Jesus says. This is how I feel. This is what I want. And it's not just heterosexual. It's homosexual. It's all the different forms of sexual immorality. And he's saying, stop. (laughs) You know, sometimes you just got to look at somebody and say, in love, stop. In Jesus' name. I'm really glad someone said that to me years ago in so many words. Stop. Because if you don't stop, here are the consequences. He loves us, but he says, stop. So they're uh, criticized for idolatry and sexual immorality. They're commanded to repent and hold on to what they had. The church in Sardis, chapter 3, 1 through 6, commended for absolutely nothing. (laughs) Not even the dream team. Like you didn't even say your dream team's awesome. Your coffee's phenomenal. (laughs) I mean, nothing. He's got nothing. He's got nothing in his pocket for them. Criticized for y'all are dead. And that dead, let me, let me use it in our own way. Dead is, well, dead in faith, dead in affection. I, I grew up going to a church that was dead. If I were to get up and say, Jesus is Lord, isn't he awesome? If I were to have ended worship today, if I had taken that approach and adopted it in the church that I grew up in, they would have looked at me like I was crazy. And I, there are times I think back and it's like, come on, y'all, we're worshiping. I wanted to say we're worshiping the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. This is not the DMV. (laughs) Right? And I'm not saying it has to be a Pentecostal, you know, lapse and people running around and get them their own corner, you know. That's another extreme, right? Your worship corner. But but come on, there's got to be some zeal, some excitement. You got to check your pulse. If there's not some excitement, some zeal, you got to check your pulse and see if you've really been born from above. Are y'all with me? But I mean, like, they're dead. Their works are incomplete. They're commanded to wake up. Y'all, hello, this ain't the DMV. Wake up and give your God some praise. That was Sardis. Uh, Philadelphia, they were commended for deeds and being faithful. No critical comment. They're commanded to hold on to what they had. And finally, Laodicea. In chapter 3, verses 14 through 22, commended for, uh, well, nothing. (laughs) Not even growth track. Like, that was awesome, the way y'all did that. Um, No, nothing. Criticized for being lukewarm. 
In their self-confidence, they got lukewarm, and they're commanded to be zealous in to repent. Now, briefly, some people read this whole uh, idea of being lukewarm as and hot and cold as, like I just mentioned in that context. Hot means fired up, right? Cold means, you know, dead in your affections. Well, I guess it could mean that uh, even in this context, but check this out. In, in the first century and beyond, uh, water had to be piped into Laodicea because there was no good source there in the day, so it was piped in. And as the water traveled into the city, uh, in a lot of cases, it was, well, lukewarm. It wasn't real hot, and it wasn't real cold. Now, there may have been times in the season where that was the case. But check this out. You can do something with hot water, can't you? You can do something with cold water, right? It's useful. I mean, but have you ever gone to Starbucks and ordered, hey, hook me up with a lukewarm latte? You get your drink either hot or, but you never order it. And and that's true today, and that was true then, that hot water was useful, cold water was useful, but lukewarm water wasn't useful. And Jesus says, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. Meaning, you're not useful to me because you're dependent on your own strength and ability. There's self-confidence going on. And basically, they'd sever themselves from the power of God. And we're no longer useful. That's in context, I think, what is meant here. Revelation 3.22 says, He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit would say to the churches. Now, before we take a break, I want to ask you the question. How does this apply to you? Don't think it was, that was just Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Smyrna. Don't, don't think that. Think. What is the Spirit saying to you? What is the Spirit saying to this church? I'll let you answer that question in your own time. Maybe you're thinking about some things right now. The historical, the historical approach sees the gradual application uh, of what's written in the book of Revelation from the time it was written all the way through time. Gradual. So little by little by little, of course, Uh, over the course of history, think that way, when you think historical approach. The futurist approach is, well, these things are going to take place primarily at the very end of human history. Does that make sense? So the historical is little by little. The preterist is way back in the first and second centuries. The historical is little by little. And then the futurist is uh, what is primarily to come at the very end, which some people would say we're, we're right at that now. Okay. All right, so let's jump now into uh, Revelation chapter 4. And we're actually making pretty good time, pretty good headway as we go through this. I'm going to speed up through certain parts. Um, but, but here in, John, uh, in John's vision, what we're going to see is his vision of heaven. Wouldn't you guys like to just have a little glimpse into, into heaven? You've heard about people who've passed and... Uh, they, maybe they died, their heart stopped, and they had this out-of-body experience, and they, they went and saw heaven. And we read books about this type of stuff, and they're fascinating about what people, when they come back, so to speak, they die, but they come back and, and talk about it all. It's fascinating. But, but really, what we need to focus on is not what some person said about their experience in heaven. Uh, we need to look at what, what John and what the biblical authors 
in particular, John saw in heaven. Because this, we know this really happened. We know that this is a real historical account. And so we're going to focus now on things that are to come, things that are to come, things that have been, but things that are to come from John's perspective. Where? Where's it going? Heaven. Heaven. We've been on the earth. He got the, the vision, wrote it down, gave it to the churches on the earth. Now we're going up into heaven with John. We're going to get this, this heavenly view of what's about to take place. And here's, here's what John says to us. He says, after this, that is after all of what we just talked about, with the letters to the churches, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, what did he say? Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, and one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 what? Elders, or wise angels. These are exalted angels who uh, serve the throne of God. They're clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Are you picturing this? Talking about a vision of heaven, okay? And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures. Now, these are guardians around the throne of God, full of eyes in front and behind, which means all seeing, all knowing, the first living creature, like an ox, not an ox, but like an ox. The second living creature, uh, excuse me, the first living creature, like a lion. The second living creature, like an ox. The third living creature, with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature, like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, what did we sing earlier? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. Now, the primary individual, if you will, that we're going to focus in on now is the one who's seated on the throne. Who do you think that is? Well, it's probably God the Father, seated on the throne, and the most highly exalted angels and beings in heaven are falling down, and they're basically worshiping and they're praising this great God. Now, as we look at this chapter in brief, in chapter 4, John is seeing all of this take place up in heaven. And we said earlier, when we pray, we should pray, let your kingdom come, let your will be done on earth as it is. And this is a picture of what worship should look like here on the earth. This is the way it appeared to be in heaven as all of creation, as we're going to read, is worshiping. If you go on and read in Revelation chapter 5, we're going to see a transition from the worship 
the worship that's taking place there to Jesus stepping into the scene, into this moment of worship. So first of all, we have John's vision of heaven, but then letter C, we're going to read about Jesus' qualification to reclaim the earth. So you have the centrality of God the Father, these highly exalted beings worshiping God on the throne. But then in chapter 5, it says this, Then I saw in the right hand of him who is seated on the throne a what? A scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Worthy, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one on heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to even look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw what? Who? A lamb. Standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders, look at this, fell down before the who? The lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and they shall reign on the earth. Now, here's what's going on. Once again, big worship scene in heaven. Highly exalted angels falling down before the one who's on the throne. But now what we're going to see is that from a heavenly perspective, that there's going to be judgment that's going to take place on the earth. That there's going to be judgment that's going to be poured out. And there was, this, there was a, a looking, a longing for someone who is able to take the scroll, which this is basically the title deed to the earth which I believe in the scroll recorded the events of human history and the judgments that were going to come upon people to the end of time, someone had to come forth who was worthy to open the scroll, to break the seals, to pour out judgment onto the earth. And there's, he's looking around. He's like, there's no one worthy to do this. Who could actually judge the earth? Who's the one who could actually reclaim the earth? Who has that kind of authority? Who has that kind of power? Obviously, the Father does. But notice here, it was the Son, Jesus, the Lamb, who takes the scroll from God, and he is the one that was only worthy. He's the only worthy one to break the seals, to read the content, and to unleash judgment on the world. And Jesus is qualified to do this because he was the Lamb who was what? He was slain. Judgment was poured out on him. He took the judgment of the world upon himself for all who believed. And so he, because he's the son of God, he's the son of the father, he alone has the right to pour out the judgment and to open the scroll. Now, in Roman law, it was said that a will had to be sealed seven times. So if you had a, a roll, if you had a scroll, if you had... Uh, this long testament or history, it would have seven seals along the way. 
and you'd have to go through the, the seal. So it would be rolled and sealed seven times. But you had to break each seal to finally get to where you could read the entire content. Think about this. The content that contained details about the end of the world, that talked about judgment, horrible things that are going to come upon the earth, are all in this scroll, so to speak. John sees the Lamb take this, and he begins to open them one by one. Now, what's about to take place is this. I've said that he's about to judge the earth, but really, this is Jesus reclaiming the earth taking it out of the hands, the authority out of the hands of evildoers, out of the prince of this world, Satan's hands, and reclaiming it for himself. How many of y'all know Jesus has absolute dominion? He has absolute authority over the world. He's stepping forward to open these seals, which one by one in these judgment is going to be the power of heaven unleashed on the earth against the forces of the Antichrist and against evildoers to reclaim what is rightfully his. Now, this is something that has happened in measure, and it's something that will take place. Let's look at some of the details. Letter D, the administration of Jesus' judgments, the seven seals. As Jesus breaks the seal judgments, judgment is released on the earth. And these, watch this, these judgments, which are horrible, are pictures of things that have already happened to some extent, but are also pictures of the judgment that is to come. I said earlier, I follow the historical approach. And I don't place the book of Revelation and all and most of the details from chapter 4 and 5 on uh, in the first century. I'm going to see a gradual unfolding. And I don't place them all at the end. I'm going to see a gradual unfolding. Now, as these seals are broken... Judgment begins to be poured out. Again, I think this partially happened in the first century, and I think it has application throughout all of time to the very end. Let's read it together. Revelation 6, 1 and 2. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals. He broke it, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a loud voice, Come! And I looked, and behold, a what? A white horse. And its rider had a bow. And a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. Now, who is unleashing this judgment? Now, I just want to get this good. This is not Satan unleashing bad things against the earth. This is, this is Jesus, the Lamb who taken the scroll. He, one by one, is releasing these judgments. Now, the question is, as this white horse, you've heard of the four horses of the apocalypse, well, you have, the, you have the white horse, you have the red horse, the black, and the pale. You have these four that we're going to read about. Each one brings a specific judgment upon the earth. Now, before I talk about what these judgments are, a lot of people today are, are, are asking the question and talking about the issue of the timing of the rapture. There are people who believe that because this is going to happen, some say in a seven-year period, confined to that, that there's going to be a rapture where the church is taken up and away, and therefore we don't have to worry about any of this stuff. Okay, that's one view today in the church. There's another view that says, well, because these judgments are going to be released over and over again in different ways throughout the entire church period leading up to the end, that we're not going to be taken out of this world until it's all over with. Okay? Now, that, that's another view. You might hold to that view. But what I'm going to show you is that even though judgment is going to come upon the earth, watch, the judgment is not for you. 
Let me say that again. The judgment is not for you. The judgment is against evildoers. Paul says he has not assigned us to condemnation or to judgment, but to salvation. Jesus was worthy to open the scroll because he was judged for us. The wrath that should have fallen on you fell on him, right? So there's no wrath for you. The lamb, Jesus, has no wrath for you if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. There's no judgment that's coming your way if you're in Jesus Christ. Y'all get that? So however you read this, you're either going to be protected because you're raptured and you go to heaven, or to a certain extent, you're going to be protected through this, and I emphasize to a certain extent, because you belong to Jesus and because you're going to be sealed along the way, marked and preserved. And we're going to get into that in just a second. But here's the first, here's the first judgment. It, he speaks here of this, this white horse. Now, people have talked about who this is, what it means. I believe that the white horse just refers to warfare that's going to come upon the earth. Look at what he says. He had a, a bow, this, this rider did, and a crown was given to him, and he came conquering, and he went out to conquer. Now, I believe, this is just me. You can have your own view of this. I believe this is a picture of all the war and all the wars that are going to take place throughout human history, from the first century all the way through the end, World War I, World War II. How many of y'all believe there might be a World War III pretty soon? Um, I promise you it's not going to get better <laughs> in the world. It's going to get worse. Now, that's true for the world, but for the church, the church is going to continue to shine and get better. The world is going to get worse, but we're to shine, right, in the middle of it all. So that, that's why it's, it's a book of victory, Okay. But I believe that he's speaking here of this rider going out, this horse, this rider going out. There's judgment. And that's taking place all, all through human history, of course. But there's, there's so many things to be said about war. What does war do? Well, people die, right? And even if you're not in the foxhole, even if you're not out fighting, if you're watching it take place in clips on the news, there's a sense in which it arouses in us this Oh my goodness, I've been worried about all these other things. Life and death are right before me. And for some people, it's my country's about to be invaded. I mean, I could be killed, I could be murdered, I could be taken into captivity. It really makes you face your own mortality. It kind of chops away at the things that aren't important, and you get down to the main things that really matter. War gets people's attention. It's been said that there are no atheists in foxholes, right? Maybe that's true. I can see why it would be. But war is unleashed. And as war is unleashed, Jesus says this in Matthew 24, 4 and 5. He said, see that no one leads you astray. Many are going to come in my name saying, I'm the Christ, and they will lead many astray. Watch this. I believe that the, the, the rider not only wars against people in general, and there's war in general, I believe that this is also a war on truth. That there's going to be a rider that sweeps through history, and it happens decade after decade, century after century. False Christ, those who come and make war against the truth. So there may be a double application going on here. But that's the white horse. The, the seal's broken. He's released. The seal that is broken next is seen here uh, in the, the, the uh, release of the red horse. Seal number two, the red horse. So first you have the white, then the red. It says, when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should, look at this, slay one another. And he was given a great sword. Now, I believe this refers to strife and dissension. 
not just warfare in general, but people turning on one another. Um, a breakdown of law and order in society. When the church is removed and its influence is removed, when the influence of the Holy Spirit is removed, when those restraining devices are removed, it's people left to their own devices, turning, killing one another. Isn't this terrible? Slaying one another. Homes divided. Nations divided. Turning. Seal number three, the black horse. When he opened the third seal, I heard the living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. Now, I don't have time to get in to break all this down, but basically, the black horse represents famine, financial ruin, and great inflation in the earth, financial inflation, where you have to work all day just to get enough for yourself to eat for a day. If you have a family, you're in big trouble. So this is severe economic inflation. Of course, this has happened throughout history at times in countries and nations. But there's going to be a time that comes when this is going to be accentuated in a way that history's never seen, probably on a global scale. Seal number four, the pale horse. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over the fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. What normally happens after there's a lot of death and bloodshed, if the bodies are left, well, wild beasts are going to come and fight over, literally fight over what's left to eat, to tear those remains apart. But this rider comes out, killing with a sword. Famine, pestilence, and wild beasts are going to kill and to eat what has been killed and left over. So are you getting the picture of just how horrible this is? Now, this is a picture of some things that have happened in pockets along history, along the way. But once again, just my view is that this is a picture of what is going to continue to happen in the world and that at the very end happened, I believe, on an almost, if not complete, full global scale. So you've got the white horse, you got the red horse, you got the black horse, you got the pale horse, you got death, you've got destruction, you have people turning on one another. This is the stuff that really scared me years ago. Y'all see why when I read it, I'm like, hello, John 3.16, come to me. <laughs> For God so loved the world, you know? Yes. He does love the world. But he's also going to come and judge the world. And that's what's happening with the four horses of the apocalypse. Now, these are what that are being opened and broken? Seals, right? The scroll contains the title deed and the history, the details of the history of the world, the judgments that are to come, breaking one at a time, and these judgments follow. Seal number five, look at this, a vision of the martyrs. When I opened the fifth seal, when he there, uh, excuse me, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God, and for the witness they had borne. 
So let me stop right there. Do you see what I mean when I say we will be protected to some extent? See, we can't say that, well, because you're a believer, that you can just go on the mission field and Jesus is he's always going to protect you. He, he, he might, right? I guess he will until he doesn't. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? Thanks a lot. So you're, you're called to go to the mission field. I just totally deflated your, your ambition to go. But he protects us until he doesn't, right? Uh, precious in your sight are the death of your saints. Psalm 116. So this is a balance. He protects us, but sometimes he calls us to go and not live, but what? To die. Now, this message right here is completely absent from the American church, the popular American church. Because in American church culture today, it's big teeth, seminars on leadership, and I'm fine with that stuff. But Jesus' message is not primarily leadership. Yes, there's leadership in there, of course, helping us get better in this area and that area. But, but his primary message was, come to me and die. Pick up your cross, follow me, be obedient to me, die to yourself, and do whatever it takes to take my gospel into the world. Y'all see that? It's in the scriptures everywhere. But it's rarely, I'll say, let me be nice, rarely preached from popular American pulpits. Here, the souls of those who had been slain are spoken about. They died because they had borne witness to Christ. They cried out with a, lo- a loud voice saying, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge and avenge our blood? People killed us. When are you going to deal with them? <laughs> avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants. Look at this. This could be you. This could be me, until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. You get that? Now, and this, this really will cut off, in a way, some people who are in Christianity just because they want temporal gain and blessing now. If, if you signed up for Christianity and you just want a nice, easy life, whoosh, whoosh, prune, okay, it's not what this is about. Now, if he gives you that, praise God. If you make a lot of money, praise God, tithe, you know, yes. And nothing wrong with that in itself. But the call is to, to die, to do whatever it takes to die, die to self daily. But maybe, maybe, possibly, I would say eventually and inevitably, per, uh, persecution is going to come to America. We've got to make our minds up now. Not when it comes, but now if we're going to serve Jesus through the midst of persecution. Now, I know Louisiana, you know, it's the place where Pastor Jacob says, if you don't believe in God in Louisiana, you get shot. You know, it's like, it's like everybody believes, right? Yeah, but not everybody truly is ready who believes to, to, to die for Jesus. This is John preparing us. I said, my gosh, Pastor Scott, you're being so pessimistic. I think it's just where, his, uh, where history has taken us. But he said, I'm not going to avenge God said, I'm not going to pay back until more of the people die for my sake. You see, things are delayed. Why hasn't Jesus come back? Well, because the full number of martyrs haven't given their lives yet. What a different message, huh? More have to die. Yeah. Did you guys know that more have died for Jesus in the last 150 years than in the previous 18 centuries before? 
That's true. 150, well, that's 150, uh, 150 years. A century and a half of the greatest bloodshed for Jesus that's ever taken place. Y'all see something happening here? It, talking about persecution along the way. But as we approach the end, you see how this is getting worse. And I promise you, it will continue to get worse. Maybe even in Louisiana, where there are more Christians than people. <laughs> it didn't take you a minute to get that. Are y'all with me? Um, now, maybe Louisiana will be a stronghold for Christianity. Maybe that's the case. Maybe the rest of the nation is just, well, Louisiana and Texas. Come on, Texas. Come on, Longhorns. In Tennessee, I'm from Tennessee. Well, I could keep adding here. Y'all get the point. Maybe there will be sectors, segments of the nation of churches who are strong, sending out missionaries, who are standing firm in, in times of moral collapse and shifting. Maybe that'll be us. I think it will be. But nonetheless, we're going to see this happen more and more and more. And so he sees this vision of the martyrs, and he gets the point. Number six, seal number six, the shaking of the heavens and the earth. When opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black, a sackcloth. The full moon became, here's your blood moon, like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free, look at this, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of, uh, of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks. Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the, and from the wrath of the, basically hide us from God the Father and hide us from God his Son, from the wrath. I mean, think about this. This is a horrible, horrible time to be alive, and they know that God is the one doing it to them. Isn't that horrible? Hide us, protect us, fall on us, for the great day of the wrath has come, and who can stand? What's the answer to that question? Nobody. Who can stand? I mean, we talk about if God's for us, who can be against us? And that's a great truth, isn't it? But if God's against you, who can be for you? Flip that around. It'll make you appreciate the former a whole lot more. And there will be signs and sun and moon and stars, and on the earth the stress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and waves, people fainting, look at this, with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now Luke says this in Luke 21 here at the end in verse 28. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Do you see the contrast here? For, for unbelievers, they're experiencing the wrath of God, and they're saying to the rocks and to such in the creation, fall on us, hide us. They're on the ground hiding. But Jesus says that when you as believers see these things take place, what does he say? Straighten up, baby. Straighten up. There's judgment on the earth, but straighten up, because look at what it says. Your redemption is drawing near. You see, people will go and hide because they're afraid of the wrath of the Lamb. But if you're in Jesus, once again, you don't have to worry about the wrath of the Lamb so you can stand up straight and say, man, Jesus is truly coming. And I know it because the Bible says, but these signs are beginning to take place. And you say, what does this mean? Is this literal? Is this figurative? Yes. 
<laughs> yes. It's figurative and it's parts of it. There's a literal application, I'm sure. Commentators disagree on what like, this means. Could, could it mean like the literal mountains falling and the moon and stars, everything falling? It could mean that. But it might be apocalyptic imagery just to say God's going to shake up things in the world. Either way, we're going to know when it takes place. And we don't have to shrink in fear. We can stand in faith because your redemption is drawing near. Shaking of the heavens and the earth. So do you see, as we've gone through these seals, he's breaking them, unveiling the will of God, judgment for the world. You see how this is unfolding. We've gone through here six seals, and I want you to look now at letter E. The preservation of the saints from judgment. I'll have hinted at this already. I've already talked about this in part. Let me, let me expound further. Literally, the preservation of the saints from judgment. Now, I've said that some people believe that there's going to be seven years of tribulation. Before that great, great, horrible tribulation takes place, the church is going to be raptured and therefore preserved. Okay? If that's your view, praise God. Okay? Another view says, no, we're going to go through it all. And that God might spare us from his wrath, but he's not going to spare us from general tribulation because of our testimony to Jesus. You understand the difference? There's the wrath of God. God's saying, I'm mad at you. I'm pouring out wrath on you, that is, to the unbelieving world on one hand. And then there's the, for us as believers, he's not saying that to us. There's just general tribulation because we believe in him. There's hardship because we, we trust in him. We have to differentiate between the wrath of the lamb and the wrath of people because we trust in the lamb. You understand what I'm saying? And so in this passage, we're going to read about this preservation. It can either be, if your view is you're raptured, you're in heaven, you're preserved, great. Or it could be that along the way you believe you're going to walk through it. Well, I believe if that's your view that we're going to be here on earth during this time, I believe that Revelation 7 points to your preservation and your protection through it all with some qualification. Aren't you all glad about that? that there is protection and preservation. Let's read this together in part, and I'm going to try to unpack this for you. John says in chapter 7, beginning in verse 1, After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Verse 2, Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, where the seal of the living God with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, look at this, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Now, this is an interlude. It's a pause. It's a break in the seal judgments. He said, don't harm it yet. Don't harm the earth until what happens? Until the servants are sealed. Where? On their forehead. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Now, if you go in and read in your Bible, it gives um, all the tribes, it gives the number of each, equaling in total 144,000, which is 12 squared times 1,000. 144 times 1,000, 144,000. Now, I won't even begin to talk about the errors of Jehovah's Witnesses and what they believe this means, but they're way off. 
Okay, there's that interpretation. It's way off, which I won't unpack. But then within historic Orthodox Christianity, there are a couple different ways to interpret this, and I can't get into all of it. But let me say this. I believe if you read this number and you read through in the tribes and you read the numbers and you go all the way through in reference to Israel, I believe that this number, 144,000, is symbolic for the collective total complete amount of the people of God everywhere. It's the total number of the redeemed called out to be his covenant people. Now you say, well, where would you get that? It says from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Well, in Romans 2.29, Paul says that believers in Jesus are true Jews. We are the true Israel. In Galatians 6.16, Paul calls the church the Israel of God. Now, I could be wrong. Commentators who follow my train of thought could be wrong. But I believe the 144,000 represents the totality of the redeemed. Believers across all lines. How many of you know when you come to Jesus? How many of y'all know Jesus was a Jew? But ethnic distinctions don't really matter any longer in the way that they might have in the Old Covenant. Today, what matters is that we're in Christ But here's what I want you to see. It was from the covenant people of Israel that the Messiah came forth. And now Paul says that even though ethnic distinctions aren't that important, the fact remains that we are called the true Israel of God. This is the total number of redeemed who will be sealed and marked. Where? It says on the forehead. Now this is reminiscent of Ezekiel 9, 3 through 4. Let me read this quickly and you can write this down. In Ezekiel, Old Testament, it says, Now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub on which it rested, the threshold of the house. And he called to the man clothed in linen who had the writing case at his waist. And the Lord said to him, Pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men. Look at this. Put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. Because I'm about to judge. I'm about to destroy. That's in Ezekiel, Old Covenant. You see the parallel now in Revelation 7. Mark the people of God. Mark them because they are the ones. Look at what it says here in in Ezekiel. Those who groan and sigh over abominations. See, that's how you know if you're a real child of God. That there's this... There's this desire in you for holiness. And when you see injustice, when you see sin committed, you're like, ah, there's this holy angst in your soul, right? He said, I want you to identify those people. Put the X and those are the people who are X'd out. They're marked out as my people. It happened in Ezekiel, and it's also going to happen in history. Is it a literal mark? Some say yes, some say no. But there's, it's some way of identifying the people of God in the earth. Now, when you look at the numbering, numbering is always important because even in the book of Numbers, there's a whole book called Numbers where numbers are reported, and the numbers represent the people set apart for the purposes of God who are going to go out and inherit the land. Have you read the book of Numbers? When you read the Old Testament, you see that when the people are numbered and when they're marked, it was often to identify them as the people who were going to march out into victory and be victorious. Listen to what my doctoral supervisor says about this. I think this is very insightful. He says, the 12 sets of 12,000 points to a full and complete number of the sealed. This very round, very perfect number is symbolic 
And the point of a symbolic number is to say that God saves a vast multitude. The way this list is presented in chapter 7 is similar to the militaristic arrangement of Israel's camp in Numbers 2. The list in Numbers follows the exodus from Egypt as God's people are about to make their way toward the promised land to conquer it. So also here in Revelation, God's, uh, God seals his servants who are arranged in these legion-like battalions, 144,000 strong. So it's God identifying his people, putting a mark on his people for preservation, for spiritual protection, that no matter what you go through, you're not going to receive my wrath. No matter what you face, I'm going to keep you strong. Hey, and, and you think about Peter and how he endured all that. I mean, think about the, the, the mishaps and the misspoken words of Peter, how Peter really at a moment fell away. You remember the story? He denied Jesus. But I love what Jesus says to Peter. He says, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but guess what I've done? I've prayed for you that your faith will not fail. And because Jesus prayed for Peter, yes, there's a momentary lapse of faith, but Peter rose again, and on the day of Pentecost, he's preaching to 3,000 people. He came back to faith. We have moments along the way where we get weak, and we fall to a certain extent, but how many of y'all are glad that Jesus is praying for you? You see, the greatest privilege of Christianity is not necessarily that we get to pray to God, but that God prays for us. And that he keeps us strong even when hell is being unleashed in the earth. And only those who are marked, only those who are preserved, only those who are called receive the benefit of Jesus' work on our behalf. So here in chapter 7, it's a setting apart, and it's now the releasing of these individuals to go into battle. We left off with the sixth seal. Now we're going to go into uh, the seventh seal here, the last of, of the seals that are being broken. And, and I hope this is clear for you all. I know it's a lot of details. Someone asked about the 144,000. Once again, I, I believe the 144,000 represents the total number of the redeemed on earth. Um, and it's the new Israel. We are the new Israel. And if you believe that the rapture happens first, and then there's tribulation, but there are people saved during that tribulation, and those are the ones who are sealed, that's, that's a popular view. Um, I wouldn't fight you on that. I'm just not convinced by that. So I think the good thing that I like to say is it's possible. <laughs> it kind of gets you off the hook because, y'all, in scholarship today, there are, there are a lot of different views. I think there are really three different very popular views. And I don't have time to unpack all of those for y'all, but you'll, you'll hear me make mention of those kind of along the way. What I want you to know is that if you're in Jesus Christ, that you will never face the wrath of God. It's been removed. But that does not mean that you will not go through tribulation for his name's sake. As a matter of fact, if you're really, you're really living for him, you probably will face persecution. It's a sign you're doing something right, right? Uh, and so, especially as things get heated up in, in these last days. So, uh, seal number seven. The Bible says that there's going to be this momentary silence that takes place. In Revelation 8, 1 through 5, it says, When the Lamb opened the seventh seal... There was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and the seven trumpets were given to him. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. 
Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. But what I want to draw your attention to here is when this seal was broken, it speaks of the silence taking place in heaven for how long? All this judgment's taking place, but here with this final seal, it's just calm and it's just quiet for 30 minutes. What's going on with that? Well, in Zechariah 2.13, the Bible says, Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. There's a time to shout. There's a time to praise God. But how many of y'all know there's also a time just to be quiet before God out of respect for who he is? And I believe that what's happening here is there's silence in heaven. You could say, of course, out of respect. But I believe there's silence so the prayers of the saints can be heard in heaven. Everybody that's been crying out, all the prayers of the saints collectively come before God and are heard. But I believe even more than that, the silence takes place in awe of what's about to occur in the earth. It's bad so far. But I believe this is like one of those moments of, Nothing could be said that was appropriate in light of what was about to take place. We talk about the eye of the storm, the calm, the eye of the hurricane, right? The calm before the storm. There's 30 minutes of just... But then... After the time of silence, the battle's on. (laughs) People say, let's take a knee and let's have a moment of silence. You take a knee, have a moment of silence in the right context. And you get back up and you're ready to go in the strength of God. Well, you guys have read the book of Joshua. You know that whenever a trumpet blasts, you know that some walls are about to fall down. And what follows now are seven trumpet blasts, which I believe, and this is symbolic for judgment that's coming against the world. And as these judgments, one by one, which may overlap with and coincide with the seals, these these blasts of the trumpet represent the judgment that goes against the armies of the Antichrist and the people who are opposed to the things of God. And one by one, it's an assault against that wall of hostility. It's one by one, literally, bombs falling, truth going forth and demolishing the systems of this world. But more than anything, it's the trumpet blast of victory that victory belongs to God, that every wall that's erected is going to come down. Every wall that's meant to keep God out is going to be broken down so that God can come in. And what we have here are seven trumpets. First of all, it says the the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow. The moment of silence is over, let's get our trumpets because victory is about to take place. Trumpet number one, judgment of hell and fire. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hell and fire mixed with blood. 
and these were thrown upon the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. And think about how that coincides with uh, in Exodus 9, when hail was unleashed on Egypt, hail and fire flashing, continuing in the midst of all the hail, occurred in the land of Egypt like had never occurred before. You see the trumpets blast, the judgments being, being unleashed here. Picture this, hell and fire mixed with blood. Is that literal or figurative? Yes. Does it, does it matter? Well, someone said, yeah, it matters, but it's bad. It's judgment unleashed. And I believe, yes, literal in the very end. Number two, trumpet. Number two, the judgment of blood. The second angel blew his trumpet and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. And a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died. And a third of the ships were destroyed. Think about how that corresponds to Exodus 7. When the Nile River turned to blood and everything in it died. If you remember back in that account. Trumpet number three, judgment of bitterness. The third angel blew his trumpet and a great star fell from heaven blazing like a torch. And it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. Blast after blast after blast. God unleashing his judgment against the world. Trumpet number four, judgment of darkness. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the night might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. A third of their light might be darkened. Likewise, a third of their night. Trumpet number five, judgment by locusts and demons. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and it was given, he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then... From the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal. See that? But only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. That's some protection right there, huh? For people with the seal. They're allowed to torment them. Look at this. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. Who's doing this? It's okay to say it. God. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. What? Imagine the horror of this. Look at verse 6. Revelation 9. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. Meaning, things are so bad. They're in so much pain and agony. They're basically saying, I want to die. And they're looking for ways to die, but God won't let them die. Death, what does it say? will flee from them. Do y'all feel the weight of that? 
God's keeping them alive so that they could endure his wrath. How many of y'all are glad that you're covered by the blood of Jesus? <laughs> Golly. Well, I serve a loving God. I do too. But my loving God, God is love, but he's also the judge of all creation. And I'm really glad that I chose to love him back and enter into relationship with him and to be covered in covenant with him. In appearance, they're locusts. The locusts were like horses prepared for battle on their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. Their hair like women's hair and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron. And the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions. And their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. Trumpet number six, judgment by angels. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. Look at this. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill. How, how much? A third of mankind. The number of the mounted troops was twice, 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lions' heads. And the fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed. By the fire and the smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power, for the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents with heads. And by means of them, they wound. Now, can it get any worse than this? I mean, this is horrific. Like, I can't even fathom. I don't have a category in my brain to understand this. The only categories I have are literary, not literal in my day-to-day experience. It's what the text says. But I can't even fathom this, assuming a literal interpretation. But even in an apocalyptic Symbolic level. Whatever it is, it's so bad. People want to die, but they don't die. God keeps them alive so they can hurt more. The worst part is here. It's not what God does to them. It's what they refuse to do in response to God. Revelation 9, 20 and 21. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor look at the stubbornness of mankind. You think these are poor, innocent people. Well, let's read it. They did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. You would think that all of this would cause them to say, what must I do to be saved? But do you see the refusal to repent? That in the face of the wrath of God, they're still basically shaking their fist at God saying, we're going to go our own way. Amen. Isn't that a picture of American culture? I mean, we talk about, well, man, it all happened when we took prayer, you know, out of schools. Well, listen, I want prayer in school, but that's not the problem. 
The problem is not that we took prayer at schools. The problem is we stopped praying at home. That's the problem. The problem is not that the Ten Commandments have been taken down off a wall. The Ten Commandments, if you're a believer, are written. The law is written on your heart. I don't need it on the, on the wall. What God wants it is in our lives, living it out. Because how many of y'all know, if you live it out, you'll have a society that doesn't have the problem with it being on the wall. But it's about being here first, right? It's about praying at home, not just in public, in private, being a man or a woman of God. We have all these luxuries, or we've had them in American culture. We've had Bibles everywhere, translations everywhere. You know, the Bible can be read to you on your phone. We have all of these external benefits of being a, well, really, we're a post-Christian nation now. But think of it all. Think of all the churches. Think of all the preachers on TV. Think of all the truth that's gone out. Think about how most of America has heard the gospel, if not everybody in some form or fashion. Think about this. But you turn on the news today, and there is a, a refusal, a refusal of people to repent. And people justify their wickedness. They justify the, the things that God hates. They justify those things and continue in them in spite of all of the great things God's given us. Now, the Bible says in Romans, I believe it's 2.4, it says kindness that leads us to repentance. Isn't that true? There's a season of kindness that I think is about to come to an end. The Bible says it will. When God's only choice is to judge those who have refused his word. Which leads us to this next section in chapter 10. Look at this. Letter F. The ingestion, or you could even say digestion, of the word of God in chapter 10. Okay, are y'all getting the picture of how bad this is? Seven seals, seven trumpets, horrible things happening. We're not to the seventh yet, but one after another. In chapter 10, it says, Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And look at this. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey to the mouth. But when I had eaten it, it made my stomach bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. What does that mean? Well, I believe that uh, the scroll represents the judgments of God. It represents the will of God that is hard to swallow. What I just said to y'all, we had to build for a while to get to this point. What I've shared in these judgments, man, that's hard to swallow, isn't it? That things are going to be that bad. You know, and people mock people like me and you for talking about judgment. It's happened all throughout time. Y'all, judgment's coming, judgment's coming, repent, turn. And, and people have scoffed and laughed and will continue to do that. But, but here, here's what's sweet about this, that judgment is coming. Well, here's what's sweet about it. When, when, we, when we take this word in of judgment, it's sweet in this sense, that, that God's judgments are always right and they're always true, and they're only poured out after a long season of patience. How many of y'all know God never just flies off the handle? You ever just fly off the handle? Don't raise your hand. 
if you, if you do, get in a freedom group. You just fly, fly off the handle. You get mad. You know, you cut somebody off and tell them they're number one. Don't ever do that with the middle finger. That's the old you, right? But how many of y'all know God never flies off the handle? He doesn't just get emotional. Aren't you glad that he's not emotional? He's got a long fuse, like really, really long, like thousands of years long. And as people spit in his face and reject his word, all the while, man, he's a patient God. He never flies off the handle. All his ways are calculated. His judgments are always right and precise and true. Every time. And God never punishes an innocent person. How many of y'all know there are no innocent people in the sense of people who have not sinned against God? No one's truly innocent. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And my goodness in America, we know a whole lot about God. We have no excuse. We have no excuse. And I'm not trying to be hard. I'm trying to be truthful today. The prophetic voice. We, we know too much, don't we? If we didn't know, well, maybe then, but but we, we know the truth and we don't obey the truth. That is in culture. And so God says, okay, judgment's going to come. You've rejected my son, my word, my standards. So the only thing left is this. Now, there's part of it when I hear that, I'm like, that's, that's sweet to me. Because God, I don't want you to punish anybody. But how many of you are kind of glad that Hitler's getting his tail kicked right now? I mean, there's a part of me, you can't do that to millions of Jews and get away with it. And how many of y'all know in this life he kind of did? I mean, yeah, they, they lost, obviously. But did Hitler really get punished in this life in sufficient measure for what he did to Jews? Did Mao, did anybody, truly? I mean, for every person that was murdered, did, did they get repaid in this life for that? They are now. That's what the Bible says. Don't, don't try to carry out vengeance on those who sin against you. Leave room, Paul says, for the wrath of God. It's his job to repay. And see, in the nature of God, he's merciful, he's kind, but he's also just. And if God, if he, if he does not punish people like Hitler, and you name them, if he does not, then he's an unjust judge. Look, every sin will be paid for either in hell, be punished either in hell or on the cross. Your sin, you should be punished, shouldn't you? Come on, good Catholics, you know that better than anybody. That's all you were taught growing up, right? Yes, more than you could ever imagine. But thank God when you come to Jesus, he, take, he takes your punishment. He was punished for you. That's called substitutionary atonement. He was punished. The payment for sin went to Jesus. He got the bill. You're now debt-free. And God's still just because he punished sin, but he lets you go. If you reject him, then you're left to go into hell. People say, well, that's a place apart from God. No, it's not. It's a place where, check this out. Hell, I believe, is a place where the full demonstration of the wrath of God is released continually and perpetually and eternally. God's present in hell not in love and grace like he is for us in heaven. He's present there in this sense through the demonstration of wrath and justice. What else would hell be? Well, that's heavy, isn't it? 
That's what I see scripture pointing to. So sin will either be paid for on the cross. You can choose. We've chosen. That's why we're here, right? Jesus paid my debt. He should have killed me and punished me, but he won't now because I'm in Christ. Or he'll let me go to hell and pay for it myself, and I never really can. That's why hell goes on and on and on, because there's no way we could ever pay for our sin. So sweet in our mouth to know that God, he's going to pay back everybody who wronged me. He's going to, let me say it this way, he's going to take care of all that. Judgment's coming. By the end of this day, judgment's coming. We're going to get there. Revelation 20 and 21. We're going to get into the new heavens and new earth. But watch this. My job and your job is not to pray for judgment. God's going to judge, isn't he? Are we, are we all on the same page? It's my job and it's your job to pray, God, show mercy. Show mercy. Show it to everyone who doesn't deserve your goodness. How many of y'all know that's what mercy and grace is? Mercy is the withholding of wrath. The grace of God is him giving what we don't deserve, all the good things. It's God, I didn't deserve the good things you've given me. How many of y'all know y'all, we're all undeserving, but he's so rich in love, he gave us his best. My prayer for the unbelieving world is, God, they don't know what they're doing. God, forgive them. God, draw them to repentance. God, don't unleash your wrath on them. And you know the best way that someone can avoid the the wrath of God as we pray for people, as we pray for the community. Know how they can avoid all that? It's real simple. (laughs) Believe the good news, right? When you believe the gospel, you believe the good news, you run into a shelter that's called Christ. And as we've been reading from the 144,000 to the ceiling, to the nature of the blood and the new covenant, we're protected from the wrath of God. That's the most loving thing you could ever do is lead someone to Jesus or bring them to church where Pastor Josh leads them to Jesus. Because when they run to Jesus, they're in a shelter now. They're in a safe place. And they'll never, ever be punished for their sin, which is the greatest news of all. The sweetness of this is that, God, you're true and you're right. The bitterness of this is, God, I don't want Think about this in your stomach. You had a bitter taste in your mouth, a bitter stomach. You know what that's like? Oh, God, I don't want any to perish. That's the bitterness of this, isn't it? God, don't do this to anybody. I can't stomach this. Can you stomach this? We're about to eat, by the way. I hope. <laughs> what a bad time to talk about this. Sweet in your mouth, but bitter. Bitter in your What? What do we do? We should pray. We should prepare. We should preach. We should love people. And finally, before lunch, let's look at chapter 11 just briefly. Here, letter G. With what I just said in mind. And I just said a lot, didn't I? <laughs> With all that in mind. Ah. Uh, Bitter. Oh, it's bitter in my stomach. God, I don't want this to happen to people. With that said, letter G, the church's prophetic, prophetic proclamation. Now, this is one of the most difficult passages in the entire book of Revelation to interpret, so I'm going to tackle it nine minutes before lunch. That's smart. Uh, now, some interpret this passage literally, um, as in literal application and details, and others interpret it. Symbolically, Let's look at it briefly. Oh, this boy, this will preach. Look at this. He says, then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. 
but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my, say this with me, two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days. Now, there's a whole lot to say about this, the numbers, what's being measured and such, but let me give you my quick view of this. I believe that this passage is referring to the church, measuring and numbering the people of God. In this passage, uh, three and a half years is mentioned. Some people are going to say this refers to um, a time when these witnesses are going to be in the earth, prophesy, do signs and wonders, and they're going to be cut off, and so forth. That, that could be true. could be literal. could be a literal three-and-a-half-year period. Or, alternatively, it could just mean that this is a limited period of time. Three-and-a-half years, that's, that's significant in Jewish thought, and I can't unpack all that now, but that number was important. So when you said three-and-a-half years for the Jews, are thinking, oh, past, thinking judgment that's come and how God showed up. Judgment that came, but then God showing up is this understanding that came to bear. I believe in the, in, in the first century when people read this. Um, in the second century and beyond, more particularly. A limited time in the first century. But I think the three and a half years refers to a limited period of time and that there are these witnesses that are called and they're going to prophesy, they're going to preach, they're going to do things that, well, are, are very significant. I didn't give the whole passage here, but if you have your Bibles... It goes on to say that these, these witnesses are the two olive trees and two lampstands that stand before the Lord. Now, what did lampstand mean earlier in our study? The church. Now, let me read on and I'll explain, but it says that these lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth, and if anyone would harm them, that is, a witness's fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone harm them, this is how they're to be doomed and killed. They have power, look at this, to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the time in the days of their prophesying. And they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. Now, let's end there in verse 6. Who does that remind you of? What, what did Elijah do? There you go. What did Moses do? Strike the earth with every kind of plague. Signs wonders, and miracles. Okay, that, that's going to mark the ministry. Somebody says, well, this is like a, a literal, uh, well, a, a recapitulation or a, uh, a redemonstration of Moses and Elijah-like individuals, like real two dudes, basically. And it could be, that's, a, that's an interpretation. Or, alternatively, it could just be, as the lampstand of God, the people of God, this is us, are given prophetic power, that we're given the ability to speak for God, to preach for God in a very supernatural way in the midst of a culture that's dying and decaying morally. That we're able to speak prophetically, even the words of this book, which we're commanded to do, right? To read and to obey it, to speak and, and, and to do signs and wonders. Now, I don't know about y'all, but I don't need to see any sign or wonder to believe the gospel. I believe the gospel. I believe Jesus rose from death. I, I don't need any signs and wonders for me. Right? But, but, but think about the world out there, the, the unbelieving world that we get to confront with the word of God, 
lovingly confront. And think about the gifts of the Holy Spirit and the ability afforded to us by the Holy Spirit to see miracles happen, to see the dead be raised to life, blind eyes open, the deaf ears unstopped. That's in the Bible, 1 Corinthians 12, the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And we're given those, those powers, if you will, those abilities, which, watch, signs and wonders don't change people's hearts, do they? But what they do is get people's attention. That's why you should pray for it. God, give me the ability to walk into a hospital and in Jesus' name pray for someone and see them raised up. That won't change somebody's heart, but it'll get their attention long enough, hopefully, to hear the gospel, which will change their heart. This is a picture, I believe, of the church's prophetic witness in an Elijah or Moses-like manner for a certain period of time. But look at what verse 7 says. And when they have finished their testimony, we're going to prophesy. There are going to be periods of history. We're going to preach. We're going to be victorious. But then it says in verse 7, and when they finish the testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit, who's that? We're going to talk about him after we eat. <laughs> uh, the beast after lunch. Look, will make war on them and conquer them. And their dead bodies will lie in the streets of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom in Egypt where the Lord, their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some of the peoples in the tribes and the language and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in the tomb. They're just going to let this, the church symbolically let it, let it be. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over the destruction and so forth because these prophets have been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from the heaven saying, come up here. And they went up to heaven in the cloud and their enemies watched them. Could be rapture there, maybe, in the way we understand it. Come up here. The church, historically, has had great seasons of victory, but man, look at church history. There have been seasons of great defeat. We've spoken prophetically, signs, wonders, and miracles, but there have been seasons. It's like, bam, and the church, where's the church? Trusting in the government too much. Where's the church? How I many of you know we've been the church, not to pat ourselves, but OSC's been, we've, we've been the church. The church God's called us to be, so we don't need the government when crisis comes, right? We come together. And we rise up. That's what we do. We rise up. Here, the church has a season of defeat. We're dead in the street, so to speak. Dead for years. But then, how many of y'all know, <laughs> with every death, there's always a resurrection. With every defeat, it's God speaking to his people. You might be down, but because you're mine, you can't stay down. I put my word <laughs> like fire. What does it say here? This is incredible. Power to turn water into blood. Strike the earth. And it says here that their words were prophetic in nature, like, we could say like fire. You know what I believe? Do you know what I believe caused the persecution to be unleashed against these witnesses? I think it was the fact that their message was one of repentance. Because look at what it says. They prophesied in sackcloth. Boy, there's nothing that will draw heat faster than a message of repentance and a call and a summons to lay down your life and follow Jesus. 
You tell someone in their own way, in their own stubborn way, to repent, lovingly, of course. You confront that in them, you're going to find out really what's going on in their hearts, if they want to follow Jesus or not. Go in the streets, lovingly talk about repentance to people, people look, look, who are trapped in a lifestyle of sin, stubbornness, pride, sexual sin of every genre. Watch what will happen. Yes, some people will become born again, but it's the message of repentance that is so often uh, opposed. They're opposed because of this message that they had. And again, y'all, I'm not, I'm not saying we should be mean to people. I'm not saying we just talk about judgment all the time, but the book of Revelation sure talks about it. And so we just have to understand what's going on here. But what I think the author is trying to show is that there will be seasons when it seems like the church has been defeated. But the world is going to get worse, but the church is going to rise again. And it's amazing that we are on the winning team. Ultimately, we cannot be defeated. We have a message that when we speak it, it has the power to change people's lives. That when people believe the gospel, the heavens are stopped, so to speak, or shut up so the judgment will no longer fall on their lives. When we speak and people believe the gospel, there's no plague against their life any longer. There's no judgment. People pass from death into newness of life. Man, that's the power that we have as the church in our prophetic witness. And so as you study this out, you're going to see some theological paradigms that show that, well, it's just going to get worse and worse, not just for the world, but also for the church. I don't see that in the Bible anywhere. What I see is that Jesus is coming back for a a pure church, a holy church, a victorious church, one without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. And what I love about that is it's not just talking about some church in the past. He's talking about the church today. It could be us that he's referring to in Jennings, Louisiana. Do you feel victorious? Do you know that you are victorious? You better settle that now. Because a time is coming when that will be challenged. What we're going to do is we're going to hop back into our notes. And as we look at this this final trumpet, we looked at the interlude um, before we went to eat. And that was just a quick picture of the church's prophetic proclamation. Now, finally, we get to this final trumpet blast, which remember, the trumpet blast um, is symbolic for victory, right? And as we read this final trumpet uh, and about this trumpet blast, again, this reinforces what I've already been saying. Let's read it together uh, in Revelation 11, 15 through 16. It says, then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever." And ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worship God. Now, a great prayer for you to pray is Lord, let the kingdom of this world become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ. Lord, I'm praying for your dominion, for your rule, 
to fully come in my life. Say this, it begins with me. Say that, it begins with me. But to extend through my family, through my community, through the entire nation and even the earth. That's what God's ultimate will is for his kingdom to come in that way. Here we have this blast, this, this announcement of victory that, that comes forth. Now, with that said, even though the trumpet blasts, even though we know we have victory, the people of God know they have victory, still we have an enemy, we have an adversary whom we call Satan or the devil. Okay? Satan is ultimately defeated. Y'all know that's true? Ultimately, he is defeated. We are ultimately victorious. So that's true. Um, we, we look at this in the day-to-day. When we say we're victorious, that doesn't mean that there's not going to be a fight to get to that point. There will be a fight. As a matter of fact, that's why this book was written, to strengthen you in the fight, to help you along the way. Um, with that said, in Revelation 12, John provides a picture for us that I know was written to encourage us. And it's a picture of Satan's defeat that happened, well, 2,000 years ago, approximately. Which leads us to letter H, Satan's strategic opposition. Chapters 12 and 13. We're making pretty good progress here. Now, this is, this is a blast from the past, so to speak. What we're about to read is a snapshot of what happened at the birth of Jesus. Okay, are you all ready? So I know chronologically, sequentially, some of these things can get a little confusing. This is uh, what he saw that refers to the past for us, going back to the time of Jesus' birth. It says, And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains, and the agony of giving birth. Now, before we read any further, who do you think that is? Okay. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on its head, heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child. I love this. One who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was called up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. You see that number once again. Now, the question is, who's the woman? Well, you guys all said, say it again. Mary, Mary right? Um, and that's, that's possible. But most scholars believe that the woman here in this passage is not just Mary, but the woman stands for the messianic community of God. That the Messiah Jesus came forth out of Israel. He was birthed, if you will, out of Israel. Of course, that would include Mary. And there was this great opposition that came against uh, the people of God, and of course, even Mary herself in in some respect in that day. Because if you remember, um, think back to the birth of Jesus, which happened around uh, 5 B.C., the way we label time, 
um, there was a great attack against the male children. Y'all remember the story of Herod. And, I mean, the devil is always after our children. One thing you can always rest assured of is the devil is always after godly offspring. And if I'm the devil and I'm smart, which the devil isn't always that smart, um, but if I'm, if I'm the devil and I'm smart, I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to go after the community, the people, and even the woman that was going to give birth to, ultimately, this Messiah who was going to rule the nations. So you can go after all the people, or you can go after the one who's going to create the people, right? And the strategy, I think, of the, uh, of the enemy is to go after the woman, the community, and ultimately the child, who is Jesus, who grew up to be the man who would die for our sins and be the one in this book to pour out judgment against him, that is, against the devil. So I, I believe that this woman is a reference, stands for the people of, of God, the messianic community. The dragon here in this passage is, is obviously Satan. Um, and Herod, of course, uh, put the, the children to death. That was this decree that went out and that was the flight that you read about of, of Jesus or uh, Mary and Joseph trying to avoid this whole deal. Well, Jesus' life was, was spared, of course, as we know. And in this account, we see that even though Satan came against the people of God, against Mary, against Jesus, um, that in the midst of all of that, God is not surprised by any attack. Do you all understand that? That God sees everything before it happens, and he's always prepared for those things before they happen. And though there was this attack against this child, that in the midst of that, God protected his own. And I cannot repeat that enough in this intensive. God protects his own. We see him protecting us in this passage. Um, ultimately. It wasn't just Jesus, but it was his offspring. It was us who would ultimately be protected from his wrath. But this protection we see over and over and over again. And, and John's writing this to make sure that we know that God's already thought this through, that God already knew this, this was going to happen, that there was going to be this attack against Jesus, but ultimately Jesus came forth and that no one can stop the plans and the purposes of God. I think that's what this is talking about. That not even a great red dragon can come against and truly devour God's, his plans and purposes for our lives. God always wins. So John writes to show this picture of what took place. God preserved his own. And he goes on and he gives us this picture in verse 7. It says, now war arose in heaven. See, we're, we're victorious, right, in the end, but there's a war. War arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the, the dragon. Who's the dragon? Satan. Satan. And the dragon and his angels fought back. Verse 8. I love this. It should be in bold in your notes. But he was defeated. <laughs> and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. Notice that. Where? In heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to where? To the earth. And his angels were thrown down with him. So there was this defeat that took place in heaven. Now, you can talk about this at different levels and angles. What does that look like? What does that mean that, that Satan was defeated ultimately? What does that mean? Well, there's this, of course, this understanding that in the end, when we get to the book of Revelation, Satan's going to be bound. He's going to be cast in the lake of burning sulfur. We know that he's not going to win. I had someone come up to me at church several weeks ago at the end. This girl, man, she had such a heart 
not just for people, but obviously for the devil himself, because she asked, she said, can the devil be saved? And I said, no. (laughs) And she's like, but why not? I said, well, no one's ever asked me this question. But I thought immediately to the book of Revelation that the Bible says that his fate is this. Not that. You can pray all you want, but it's... (laughs) He, he, he's, he, he's a goner, okay? There's no way that he's going to be saved because he's going to be cast into the lake of burning sulfur. That, that's to come, right? There's that ultimate defeat. But here we have a picture of, of, of a different kind of defeat which will lead to the ultimate defeat. And I believe, reading into this a little bit, I believe that this is a picture of what happened. Yes, there's a war angelically, but Jesus the Son truly is the only one for us who can overcome the power of Satan and the devil. He's the only one who can neutralize his attacks against our life. He was defeated in heaven when Jesus died on the cross. Y'all know that it was on the cross where Satan thought it was a great victory for, for, for him, but it was on the cross where it was all flipped around. It looked like Jesus was defeated, but really that was his throne. That was the place of his greatest victory against death itself and Satan on the cross. Then, even better than that, he was raised back to life, right? So you see, Jesus paying our, our debt, paying for our sin, disarming the powers of darkness, canceling the legal requirements of the law, Colossians 2. You see, all that happening on the cross... The resurrection was just another way of saying that on Friday when Jesus died, he paid for our sin, the check was written. Sunday, resurrection day, was showing that the check had cleared heaven. Come on, somebody. Oh, I just told you I wasn't going to preach. That just hit me. That was good. The check cleared that Jesus is risen. Hold on, let me get another sip. So back in the spirit. Let me get back in the spirit. Um, so Jesus, he, he defeated Satan in, in those ways, okay? Yes, there was angelic activity involved with that. But, but look at this. He was defeated in heaven, but he's also, he's also, this is what John wants us to get. He's also defeated here on the earth. Verse 10. Verse, thank you. Verse 10. And I heard a loud voice in heaven. There's a lot of loud voices in this book, huh? Loud voices I'm seeing, I'm hearing. Man, that's all for us saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. Look at this. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. He's up in heaven accusing you to God, saying, your people, they're your people, but they're your sinful people. They're this and they're that. and they're How could you ever love somebody like that? It's a lot of accusation, huh? The devil does that to you and you do that to you. To yourself a lot of times as well. Um, how does that accusation canceled when the devil says they're guilty, they're sinful? Well, let's keep reading. And they have conquered him by what? By who? By who? What? By the lamb, by the blood of the lamb, and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. You see that? They overcame him. You will overcome him. Not because of your good works, not because of anything good you do, not because of how spiritual you are, but solely and exclusively on the grounds of the blood of Jesus Christ. Not because of how well your day went. You know, in those days when your day goes real well, you feel real spiritual, right? And God hears your prayers on those days, really, right? It's like, oh, God, you really hurt me today because I lived a good life today. How many of y'all know that God hears your prayers 
Every day, no matter how bad your day is or how good it is, it doesn't matter about you. See, we've got to get this performance thing out of it. You know, we don't have to perform so God will hear. Jesus performed for us, therefore God hears, right? And we overcome him. We overcome the works of darkness, the satanic accusation, the satanic opposition by the blood of the Lamb Amen. and the word of our testimony that we share to all who will listen. For they love not their lives even unto death. Satan, you can afflict me. Satan, you can kill me, my physical body. But you cannot touch my soul. You can't steal my salvation. He can steal the joy of your salvation if you let him. But he can't steal your salvation in your placement before God, especially when you've got a mark on your forehead as the people of God, sealed by the Holy Spirit. They're overcoming because of the blood of the Lamb, because of what Jesus did, because they share that, and that they, like Jesus, they, they love not their lives even unto death. That's, that's how they overcame, right? <laughs> and, and I love that this is all because of Jesus' work in and on our behalf on the cross. Ern Baxter used to talk about when Jesus died on the cross and rose again from the grave, that it was like this picture of, uh, of Jesus uh, in the cosmos, across the sky. It's like Ern Baxter said that Jesus wrapped a chain around the neck of the devil and he dragged him back and forth across the cosmos, making a pub public spectacle of the devil. He said that that's what happened when Jesus overcame the devil for us. And so positionally before God, Satan cannot, he cannot harm that. He cannot harm your relationship with God in a positional sense. He can't, he can't take you from your relationship with God. You're sealed. You're justified. You're in the process of being sanctified. That's secure. You're held in the palm of God's hand, the grip of his grace. Satan can't steal your salvation. But that doesn't mean that he's given up. Watch how Satan attacks. Even though he's defeated, even though we're victorious positionally, he's my God. We're his people. Look how, look how the attack comes. Look at, look at Revelation 13. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its head, heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast and they worshiped the dragon. Notice that verse four, and they worshiped who? The dragon. Who's the dragon? For he had given his what? His authority to the who? The beast. You see, the devil is defeated he knows he can't win, but nonetheless, he delegates his authority to someone else who will act in his name and his power. And talk about antichrists, <laughs> plural. They're everywhere. Someone said, who's the antichrist? Well, I'm like, where do I start? <laughs> you know? Actually, y'all would, would never know who this person is, but the same gal that asked me to pray for, to join her in praying for Satan was uh, the, same, the same gal that said that she knows the antichrist. And I'm like, okay. I, uh, I, said, I said, you may. I don't, I don't know. There are antichrists. There are many. There, there is one in particular. We could say he's, he's the beast. But authority is delegated. It's given over. And it's what we see happening. Uh, it says, one of the heads 
seemed to have a mortal wound. Look at this. But its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshiped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. There it is again. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Verse 7. Also, it was allowed to make war. Here it is. War on the saints and to conquer them. And, the, uh, and authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of a lamb who was slain. Now, there have been so many books written about the identity of the beast. We know who the dragon is, contextually, right? The dragon is Satan. I've said that he's now delegating his authority, authority over to this beast who rose, apparently, out of the sea. Now, whenever you read about the sea in Scripture, not always, but oftentimes, sea is symbolic for chaos and disaster, even, you guys, you guys heard me talk about this when I preached this last summer, that when Jesus rebuked the wind and the waves on the sea, that's, that's a way of saying that he has absolute authority over the chaos and the disaster of life. That when Jesus says shut up, it shuts up, right? When he walks on the water, walks on the sea, that's saying all authority has been given to him, that it's all under his feet, right? That's what's going on in those passages. It's not just a faith lesson. It's showing us who has ultimate authority. There's the chaos of life, but then there's the God of all creation. When it says that the beast rose out of the sea, you can apply it in that context, out of a, a time of confusion, out of a time of calamity, yes. But if you remember, the Roman troops came uh, from the sea when they invaded the eastern Mediterranean. And many scholars believe that the beast who has authority from the dragon, represents the Roman Empire, particularly a Roman leader from within the empire. And that, that authority was given to Rome, to the top leader in Rome, from Augustus all the way through to the Caesars, to those who were in high positions. Now we're talking about many who had been literally delegated by Satan himself to inflict great harm and persecution against the church. Now, if you read um, early church history, if you just read the Bible, beginning in the book of Acts, what you'll notice is the first persecution against the church did not come from Rome, but from Jews. It was Jewish persecution. Later, under Nero, Domitian, then you read in, into later times in the Roman Empire, the, the severe persecution that was unleashed later against the church. It came from Rome. But early it was Jewish. Later it became Roman. And so many say that the beast stands for a figure, a historical figure, that is against everything that God stands for. And I said earlier, if you're in Rome, you could serve any God you wanted to serve, right? You could, you could have any religion you wanted to, as long as your God didn't trump the emperor. As long as your God wasn't at the top, you could have any God you want. You could be as pluralistic as you wanted to be. That's the way it was. But think how, that, think how that would work. When you start serving a God 
Jesus who proclaims himself as Lord. When he says, I'm the only true Lord, think about how much conflict you would have if you lived in Rome. Now, it says here that he had this authority, and look at what it says in verse 3, that he had a mortal wound, but the mortal wound was healed. Now, that sounds like a contradiction. Was it mortal or not? If it's mortal, it means he's dead, but it was what? It was healed, and the whole earth marveled. Now, you can look at this in different ways, but I believe that this is a reference to earthly, demonic, even Roman powers of men who rose to power who had a time of great success that is in persecuting the church. They passed on, and it's like, ah, that's relief, but came back in the form of another emperor or another ruler. And I believe the mortal wound that's healed, the the healing, the, the reappearance, if you will, of this type of beast is just a way of saying that there are going to be earthly rulers that rise to power one after another. Historically, you can begin with, gosh, you can go back to the Assyrians, the Babylonians, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes in 167. You can look at the Romans. You can look at going forward all the people who have risen up, all the rulers who've stood against the people of God. As those who had a mortal wound, they died, their their rules ended, but then here comes the next one. Another one in the same spirit, in the same power of the Antichrist. And I don't think this this is just one period in history. I think it's over and over and over again. It seemed like the person had been squashed. Here comes another just like him. You think the persecution's ended. Maybe it has for a season, but the power of Satan just keeps on coming in waves. I think that's what is being said here. Because it was given the authority to make war on the saints. It's a historical figure and antichrist. But think about how that works. Many antichrists, 1 John says, have gone out into the world. But it's to make war who, on, on those who follow Jesus. I believe Rome is presented here as the great persecutor of the church. But in our own day, the B stands for... Uh, a demonically influenced world power that will try to force Christians to renounce their faith. If there's one thing I can promise out of this study is that there will arise a dominant world force, politically charged, economically uh, sophisticated and rich, that will have authority over the world, that will do everything in its power to cause you to renounce your faith. That's so clear to me in the Bible, particularly in the book of Revelation, here in chapter 13. To renounce your faith, to turn, to forsake Jesus. How would that play out? Well, let's keep reading. Revelation 13 says this, Then I saw another beast. So we had the first beast the head hog of the trough, the leader, the Roman empire, the Roman emperor, who then other, other beasts would come, other antichrists. Here we see the next one rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb. It spoke like a dragon. Look at this. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth, look at this, and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. He died, came back, died, came back. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives. Look at this. By the what? What? Signs? Things that it does? 
is able to deceive those who dwell on the earth. Oh, it's a sign and a wonder. All I've got is the Bible. We've got a sign and a wonder over here. This world leader is able to do things that nobody else has ever been able to do. He must have the truth. Telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak. It might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Now that's what? Persecution. Verse 16. Also it causes all, here it comes, all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the? Yeah. So that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. Now I'm going to stop right there. If there's one way to get people to renounce their faith, I'm thinking, It's to attack people and to threaten people and to sequester people economically and financially where they simply cannot survive. I mean, that's the way to do it. I mean, come on. When your family is in jeopardy, you can't feed your family. Jesus, family. I mean, let's get down to real life. So there's a world economic system. You can't buy or sell unless you have this mark. You can't do business unless... That's really going to test you, isn't it? Well, I've got I to provide. I've got to work. I've got to buy. I've got to sell. I've got to trade. I gotta, how, how am I going to live? If you buy or sell, then that means you have the mark. That means you're on the side of Satan. But if you don't, that means your family dies. You're on the side of Jesus. What a predicament, right? No one can buy or sell unless you have the mark. Now, that's a very clever way to control the world, to manipulate the world, to back you in a corner where you have to make a very difficult decision. Now, There might be certain applications of this throughout church history. Where if you're a Christian, I mean, sorry. I mean, parts of China, sorry. You you can't be a part of civilized society. Of course, in Iraq and Iran. I mean, think about the people who, in, in churches there that are very secretive. If you get born again to raise your hand, I mean, that means everything, doesn't it? That means, that means Literally, the next moment after you raise your hand, you could walk out the door. And if the local Muslims find out that that happened, it's off with your head, death by burning, pushing you off a building. I mean, come on, it's life or death if you get born again. It's in the balance. It's in the mercy of those that are around you, right? Here, that's not the case. You get born again, praise God, connect card, growth track, dream team, and thank God it's that way. (laughs) But it's not that way in good parts of the world. Or it might not be a literal mark, but they're marked because they're believers in Jesus Christ in the, in the Middle East. They're marked people. And because they're marked, they're limited in what they can do. You see how we, we talk about the great tribulation of something that's to come. There are people right now in Iraq and Iran and Afghanistan who think they're in the great tribulation. And for great reason. Are you with me? That is great persecution. Now, the same would apply to people in China and other under, other under dictatorships throughout history. So this is true in part throughout history, but there's coming a day and a time when I think that this will not just apply in part, but to the whole of society. And think about this. I'm just speculating here. The text doesn't say, can I speculate for just a second? Can I? I? Okay, just, just for a second. The way technology is today, 
the way the world is connected today, the way financial systems are interconnected today. We are in a position today, like never before, for this to happen under a one-world type leader. It's the first time in history that I know of, especially because of technology, that this is possible. But you have to make some real tough decisions. Now, I just said 15 minutes ago, (laughs) we're victorious. Satan's defeated. Woo! But they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their life so much that they would not shrink back from death. They said, I love Jesus so much you can kill me. So you see how this all comes, spirals in and comes to the discussion. What's the, what's the common theme? Protection and preservation, but also on our part, we have to remain in faith saying, I know I'm going to be victorious. I know I'm going to make it to the end, but the onus is on me to stand boldly. Remember earlier, when you see these things begin to happen, lift your head toward heaven because your redemption is drawing near. This is coming to the world. The way it applies, the way it manifests and will manifest, I, I, I can't. I'm just speculating. But what I see in this is that we got to be ready. Now, is there a chance that we're going to be raptured? We're going to be in heaven while this is going on? There's a chance God can do anything he wants. And maybe that was the paradigm you were taught in church growing up or maybe one you've adopted recently. But what if, what if you don't get raptured before the tribulation? Hey, I really hope we do. Anybody else? I mean, I hope that view's right. I'm just not convinced by it. But I really hope it's right. I would not fight any of you if you hold to that view. I just, I can't see it clearly, explicitly taught in the Bible. But let's say that's true. Praise Jesus and everything good in the world. We're out of here. Um, When persecution comes. But say that God's called us to be here during this type of persecution. Are you ready for it? See, I would rather prepare you and it be a possibility. At least you have a category in your mind for horrible things that could take place. And you get ready emotionally. You prepare yourself spiritually that you're you're fighting now. You're engaging, knowing of what's possible. I'd rather for you to prepare than to be caught off guard when these things begin to take place. And you think, well, I should have been raptured, but I'm still here. Ah, well, how do I embrace all this trouble and hardship and persecution? Well, you go back and read the book of Revelation. It tells you how. So I could be wrong, but we need to be prepared. Regardless, persecution is coming. We have to ready ourselves for it. Because it's possible that we're going to go through it and then be raptured at the end of the Great Tribulation. Okay? With all that said, finally, we have this final administration, letter I, of wrath. This final administration. So you see overlap here. Judgment is being poured out. Persecution is taking place. Satan's defeated ultimately, but there's a war that will continue to be fought. And then, let her eye, the final administration of wrath. And I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the what? The wrath of God. So seven, seven, and seven. Seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bold judgments. 
bowl number one, judgment by sores. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the, uh, uh, which mark? You see, you see who this wrath is for? It's for who? Yeah, those who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. Bowl number two, judgment of the sea. Then the second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. Bowl number three, judgment of the rivers and waters. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the spring water, and they became blood. Bowl number four, judgment by the sun. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. Now, my goodness, I said earlier, it can't get any worse. It just did. Y'all see that in verse 8? They were scorched by the fierce heat and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. Some of stubbornness, man. Just someone you would think in this moment would say, man, this is so horrible. I'm going to turn and repent. But It says they did not repent. Bowl number five, judgment of the Antichrist and his kingdom by darkness. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast. Notice this. It's to the beast, those who worship the beast. But here, to the throne of the beast. And its kingdom was plunged into darkness. I don't think that just means the lights went out. It means that this is God putting an end, we would say in our own vernacular, cutting the power off to his authority. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven um, for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. So there's darkness, there's pain, there's sores. In bowl number six, preparation now for the final battle. It says the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east for this great battle that's going to take place. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. Notice, not frogs, but like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God, the Almighty. And they assemble them at the, the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. And we're about to read, this big battle ensues. Bold judgment number seven, the judgment of earthquake and hell. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nation fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, imagine this, fell from heaven on people. And they cursed God for the plague of the hell because the plague was so severe. So we've seen judgment. I feel like that's all we've talked about. Judgment after judgment after judgment. But this is Jesus reclaiming the earth for himself, overcoming 
the Antichrist, overcoming the beast, overcoming and judging all who stand in opposition. Now, in your notes here, letter J, just a summary of chapters 17 uh, through 1910. Basically here, I'm just going to summarize this briefly. You've got this contrasting picture of, of the prostitute, this great whore uh, referred to as Babylon. And basically it's a, it's a picture of, of the faithless economic and political systems of the world and the faithless people of the world. You see in, in chapter 17 on, on, on this side, the prostitute, the whore, is judged and ultimately falls. That's what 17 is basically about. But then what you see, contrast this with me. You see the prostitute, the whore, whoring after other things, not serving God, faithless to God, faithful to the things of the world. This whore, this prostitute on one hand, on the other, now we see the bride, the bride of Christ, who is the, the church. And the bride is faithful. Think about the contrast here. The people of the world, they're going to get darker and they're going to become more evil and, and more adulterous. But the people of God are, are portrayed, you and me, we're portrayed as the bride of Christ, pure and, and holy and radiant. The whore falls, but the bride rises in triumph. And that's what we see here as we approach the marriage supper of the Lamb, as we approach and get into now Revelation 19. Because we see that Jesus is going to come back and there's this final battle that Jesus as the bridegroom coming for his bride is coming once again not to make friends but to be united to his bride, yes, but to wage war finally and fully against everything and everyone that stands against him. Look at letter K, the destruction of the Antichrist and his army. Then I saw heaven open. Look at this. Remember what I said earlier? The first coming, Jesus came how? Humbly, right? And through, through the womb of Mary, riding in on his what? Humble and lowly, right? Look, check it out. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it's called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. There it is. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their great armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophets who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Now, what a picture of Jesus' kick and tail. Y'all see that? 
you see that Jesus has the final say in all of history. And Jesus, in his word, he says to us, those who persevere to the end will be saved. Those who endure through all the tribulation and persecution and hardship in the end, that doesn't mean just physically spared from persecution. It means in the end, we will inherit the blessing of eternal life and the promise of the new heavens and the new earth. That's ours if we persevere and if we endure. And and you can ask, why was chapter 19 written? What does does this mean for us practically today? It means that we're going to be opposed. We're going to be challenged, that our faith is going to be tried, that things and people are going to come against us. But once again, I said this at the very beginning, in the end, church, we win. And our our, our Christ, our Jesus is coming back and he is going to defeat all the armies of the world for us, that he is our leader. He is our God. And in the end, we can trust that no matter what happens along the way, the forecast is bright, that Jesus is going to have the final say. He's going to make right every wrong. Every wrongdoer will be repaid. He's coming back here, chapter 19. And this is a cataclysmic event where Jesus squares off with the wicked forces in the earth and prevails, which leads us to letter A under number five, the final grand events of history. Before I get into this, just chronologically, we can look at seals that have been opened and broken, the scroll that was revealed, the contents within, judgment poured out over the course of history, trumpets that were blasted and announced victory for the people of God. Satan was defeated, rendered defeated when Jesus died on the cross, yet we're still at war with him in the sense that we have to uh, persevere in our faith, continue in faith. We see all this happening. And then we're we're up now to this final battle we just read about, which leads us to these final grand events, which I believe could happen in our lifetime. I believe that, again, I can't be absolutely positive, but if the full number of martyrs come in, if enough people die, if the signs reported thus far have been fulfilled, which I think it can happen in our generation, then then we could literally see letter K take place before our very eyes if we we, uh, stay watchful. Now, with that, the grand final events of history, if we're alive today and Jesus came back, as described in chapter 19, all that took place, we're victorious. What happens chronologically after that? Well, letter A, Satan, Satan, I'm sorry to the girl that wanted him to be saved. (laughs) Satan will be bound. And by the way, I said, don't pray for Satan. Pray for all the people who are deceived by Satan. He'll be bound. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and the great chain. And he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Now circle that or underline that, a thousand years. And threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Now y'all see why this book gets confusing? Is he defeated or not? You know, is he bound or is he loosed or what's going on? 
Well, Satan was defeated, that is, as he was personified and incarnated in, 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 uh, in the beast and in those who follow him. That's true. His works are defeated. But here, Satan is bound historically. His works are, are, uh, are, are contained, if you will. It says here, he was bound for this period of time, cast into a pit. Now, scholars debate whether the thousand years is literal, like is it a thousand literal years starting from this point moving forward, or is this just symbolic for a length of time? I don't know. It depends on, I mean, I'll read one guy, I'm like, yeah, yeah. Then I read somebody, I'm like, no, no, yeah, here, you're wrong, he's wrong. I don't know. It's, it's, it's hard to be sure because numbers can be so symbolic throughout this whole book. It's a period of time for sure where we're told that Satan's works are contained. He is contained and his influence is greatly restricted. It says after that, he must be released for a little while, which means there are events still happening here on the earth in this thousand-year period. Letter B, believers will be resurrected. And we see this chronologically in the flow of chapter 20 here, after um, we read here the, the resurrection of believers comes, and this is uh, moving up in the passage in verse, uh, starting in verse 4, working through verse 6. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to, the, uh, to judge were committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. You can circle this. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Now, some of you may think First Thessalonians 4. You might think rapture. Some people think that this is the point in history when this actually occurs. Christ comes back, judges, and then bam, it's a resurrection of believers, those who had been faithful. They came to life. That's what that means. They write not spiritually, but there's a physical resurrection. They come to life. They reign for how long? A thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power but they will be priests of, our God, uh, of, our, uh, of God and of our Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Now, let her see. Believers will reign with Christ for a thousand years. They came to life, the Bible says, and reigned, for this, reigned with Christ for this, this thousand years of, for the most part, peace and prosperity. And Isaiah speaks of this period of, in these terms. No more shall there be an infant who dies uh, or excuse me, who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old. That man shall be considered accursed. Look at the imagery from Isaiah 11 of peace and prosperity. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. You see this picture of peace? In serenity, why is that? Why is that possible? How is that possible? Because Satan is bound, right? Their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, 
and the winged child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now, I don't have time to get into all the details of what this thousand-year period looks like. Some people say that the thousand-year period refers to the heavenly reign of the saints during the church age. Others say that the thousand-year period of peace and prosperity is actually a time in the here and now when this millennial reign takes place. It's called like this golden age of the rule of Christ where the world becomes basically Christianized, where uh, it, for a certain period, rulers of the kings of the earth, political systems come under the authority of Jesus, and there's this peace and prosperity. Others still say that, no, this millennium is still to come, and it's after the destruction of the beast and so forth, the binding of Satan, as we've just read. So I don't have time to unpack the details. There's a lot of details that go into this. But what you just simply need to know is that the believers who are resurrected are going to reign with Christ. There'll be a, there's going to be a time of prosperity and peace. But then, letter D, finally, we get to this, Satan, at the end of this period, will be finally defeated in the fullest sense of the term. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they march. They marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown, here, here it comes, thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So no, he can't be saved. You can pray if you want but direct your prayers elsewhere. Because y'all know this, no one that you know is beyond the reach of God's grace. No one's too far gone. The devil is. That's the way God decreed it. Why? I don't know. Who cares? The point is, <laughs> the point is, no one's beyond the grace of God in this life. And so we see Satan defeated, finally, thrown into this lake of fire and sulfur. And then, letter E, which gives me chills. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Who was seated on the throne back in uh, Revelation 4 and 5? Well, God, right? And the lamb was there. There's this throne. I saw him who was seated on it. Look at this. Listen to this language. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. Whoa. Everything in the created order vanishes. Verse 12. And I saw the dead. Great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. We've been talking about scrolls, right? Seals, 
decrees, title deeds, now books. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had, what had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, what a picture, huh? What a horrible picture. God the judge is on the throne. All humanity is drawn there to the throne. Think about this. We are going to be drawn irresistibly and brought forth before the throne of God. We're going toward him while earth and sky and everything in the created order is going in the opposite direction. Everyone, look at, look at the language, dead, great, small, all people everywhere are going to stand before God in judgment. And I don't know what this day fully looks like, of course, because the Bible isn't exhaustive. But I do know that on that day, everybody's going to be judged. We're all going to have to give an account for the way we've lived. Now, I said earlier, if you've believed in Jesus, you've passed from death to life, you're justified, right? I mean, right? I mean, we already know that we are, we're innocent, right? And because of Jesus' blood, we're forgiven, all that, yes. But this says, nonetheless, notwithstanding, we have to stand before God that we're going to be judged according to what we were doing. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean we're judged because of our works? Because that's what it sounds like. And the answer is yes. But what does that mean? I thought you said we're not saved by our works. We're not. Well, then what do you mean? <laughs> Here's what I mean. That we are saved by faith and faith alone, right? Luther, Luther, Martin Luther fought for that. I mean, we just celebrated the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. And Martin Luther stood against the corrupted Catholic Church of the day and protested October 31st, 1517. No, we don't believe these things are true. They're not in Scripture. You're teaching false things. And from that, the Protestant Reformation launched. And it was the way he translated Romans 3.28. We maintain that a man is saved NIV and other versions say, by faith apart from the works of the law. Luther translated as, by faith alone. He said, we're saved by faith alone. That's how we're saved. It's not by works. It's not penance. It's not going to auricular confession. It's not the Eucharist. It's not transubstantiation. It's not any of that. It's certainly not the prescribed system of salvation in front of people in the 16th century. It's not that. He said, it's faith. And that was revolutionary for people. I mean, really? It's just by faith. We don't have to do this, that. Yeah, that's right. It's what Jesus has done. You trust that, what he's done, right? That was revolutionary. It's revolutionary, revolutionary for some of you when you first heard that. It's faith alone. Say that with me. Faith alone. But John Calvin and others would go on to say that we're saved by faith alone, but saving faith is never alone and that it's always accompanied by good works. And James says that faith without works is. So on this day, he's not just looking for a profession. How many of y'all know words are cheap? Actions mean everything. And see, what we're going to have to give an account for is what we've done. But what we've done flows from who or what we believe. Isn't that true? 
if you believe God, it doesn't mean you're going to be perfect. You're not going to do works that are in heaven. But if you believe God and you trust God, that means there, there's going to be some life change, right? And because there's life change, you can, you can stretch out the trajectory of your life. And we say it all the time, though, you're not where you're, you ultimately want to be. You're not where you used to be, but you're, you're making progress, right? You're heading that direction. And see, being judged according to what we've done means that God already knows, but it's this public inspection, if you will, for all the world to see of the change that's taken place in our lives. Evidence of grace, evidence that your heart's been moved by the Holy Spirit, that your life has been changed. I don't know about y'all, but man, my life looks a lot different today than it did five years ago and 10 years ago, 15, 20 years ago. Y'all with me? You're not where you ultimately need to be, but you're not where you used to be. You're, You're moving, right? And I don't think, he's not looking for perfection. He's looking, if you will, for a profession that's backed up by action. And if the action is lacking, that means that the faith that you profess is probably dead. So that's how I reconcile we're saved by faith alone, but we're going to be judged according to what we've done. <laughs> I mean, you've got you to work these things out, right? Logically. And that, that's what I think this means. Now, for others who... You know, the unbelievers, I mean, that's an easy one, right? <laughs> there's no profession and there's no action. And for those whose names have not been written in the Lamb's Book of Life, they're not there. They're not elected. They're not selected. They're not acting in accordance with faith. Well, their destiny is right here. It's the same destiny that the devil has in, uh, well, uh, under letter D. If anyone's name is not written in the Book of Life, he's going to be thrown into the lake of fire. You remember I said earlier, we have two options. Jesus can pay for our sin or... We can pay for our sins. Jesus paid for billions of sins while he was up on the cross. Think of all the sins that he took and put on his shoulders and paid for on the cross. Wow, when I gave Jesus my sin, man, talking about a burden lifted. And not just when I did, but when I do. (laughs) Hello. Now, there's no sin in my life that would disqualify me from being up here. But I still sin. Y'all, y'all too? Yeah, you do. So it's not just in the past, Jesus, forgive me. I had a lot, boy, Lord help me. There's a lot to forgive from the past. But there's also a lot to forgive every day in my present. And you've got to remember that. Every day, go to the throne of grace. Go to Jesus every day. First John 1, 9, if you confess, he's faithful to forgive you. He's just. He'll cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Isn't that great? Ongoing cleansing. And as you confess, condemnation's removed. As you confess, guilt is removed. You know, people that say, well, I, you know, I just always feel guilty. I, I come to church, I don't feel guilty. I'm like, well, that, I guess that's good. But I guess the way you look at it is if you're sinning and you're not repenting, well, first of all, you are guilty and you should feel bad. But if, you, if you've sinned and you go and repent and you confess, Jesus removes it. The Bible says he's faithful and just. And if you continue to live in guilt and condemnation and shame after you've confessed, that means you don't believe his word. Right? You're calling him a liar. Is he a liar? Does he tell the truth? He tells the truth. So every time you confess, it's gone. You repent, you turn. Hey, you might go find it. I'm going to go back in my mind to that sin. You go back in your mind. You've done it, haven't you? You go back and you think about it. You might go there, but he'll never go there because it was paid for 2,000 years ago. You can pay for it. You can 
in hell or you can let Jesus pay for it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna let Jesus pay for my sin. So great white throne, Hitler, Mao, all the leaders, Saddam, down to you and me. And it says earth and sky fled. And on that day, there's no, you know, dial a friend, call someone to vouch for you. He was a good person. God knows. None of that. You're going to be buck naked before the throne of God with no phone calls. The only thing that you'll have on that day is the blood of the lamb and the word of your testimony. But if you've got that, that's all you need, church. That's all you need. Great white throne judgment is going to happen. Jesus is going to kick tail, kick booty again. After that, that is for those who don't believe, but after that, letter F. We're almost, we're almost home. Man, y'all have been amazing. Letter F. God will establish the new heaven and new earth. So we got all that out of the way. Satan's done. <laughs> he's, he's defeated, never to come back. He came back earlier. Y'all weren't expecting that, were you? <laughs> it's like, I thought he was defeated. Why does he keep popping his head? <laughs> he's done, okay? Um, we we are, are, are declared publicly righteous. We inherit the greatest blessing that can ever be inherited, and that is um, eternity with, with Jesus. But look at what this looks like. Letter F, God will establish the new heaven and new earth. Then I saw, who, who's this? Who said that? Not a trick question, John. Just make sure we're okay. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And check it out. And the sea was no more. That's just another way of saying there's a new order. There's a new way of doing things. And the sea and disaster and chaos and the beasts and the false prophets and the sin and the deception and all the things that are connected to those realities are no more. No sea, which means no beast. Remember, the beast came up out of the sea. There's no sea, no beast. Isn't that good? No more chaos, no more cancer, no more sickness of any kind. The sea was no more. It's gone. It's a new heaven, new earth. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death, check it out, check it out, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it's done. You can just kind of breathe out, take a deep breath in, and then I can't wait to hear him say that. It's done. Man, the book of Revelation is complicated. The events of history are complicated. The devil's a punk and I'm sinful and all these things that we can list that are so hard to swallow, all that, oh, thank God it's done. People that struggle with cancer, struggle with you name it. 
This life is hard, isn't it? It's so difficult. Even on your best day, it's difficult. There's so much pain. Man, uh, think about the officer who was shot and killed from our campus. Officer Middlebrook, who was just killed in cold blood. Her church had to walk through all that. Maybe you guys saw the funeral on on, uh, Facebook. Um, We're able to live stream it. But just think about all the injustices that take place. Maybe for you, I mean, in in, in your own world, you're, you're going through just horrible, horrible emotional pain. That's part of this world right now. Creation, fall. Creation, fall. Things are falling, aren't they? So I'm struggling. I'm suffering. And what I would say to you in love is it's normal. It's not abnormal. Pain and suffering, it's normal in this world. But it's creation, fall. Redemption, restoration. And there's going to be a day, it's coming when he says, it's done. No more of any of that. No more car wrecks. No more cancer. No more angst in your soul. It's a new way, a new order that's been ushered in. I love this because... Going back briefly, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down. And he says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Did you know that that's always been God's goal? To just be with us. Sin got in the way of that, didn't it? But here, under letter G, we see a snapshot of what it means to be with God forever. Before I read this, check this out. We're almost done. We're, golly, it's a miracle. We're on time. We're going to end on time. Listen, follow this and we'll be done right on time. It's always been God's ambition to dwell with man. And if you start in the Old Testament, he met with Adam and Eve. He met with individuals. Moses, of course, it says he spoke to him face to face, which doesn't literally mean that, but he had a close encounter with Moses close friendship. Read through the Old Testament. But you know what's amazing in the Old Testament is that if you read the book of Exodus, you read about the the construction of the tabernacle. Y'all read that? See, God would meet with you in cases individually, but it wasn't just his ambition just to meet with you in your personal relationship. God wanted to meet with Israel corporately. And so he said, as you travel, wherever you go, pitch this tent, right? Pitch the tent, the tabernacle. And you've got the courtyard, you have all the different uh, accommodations, but you have the, the holy place, the most holy place, the Ark of the Covenant was there, and the, uh, all these different detailed ornaments. Well, it was in the tabernacle, in this portable tent, which, by the way, was constructed in the mathematical center of the camp of Israel. It was in the center. That was where God's presence would dwell. If you want to meet with God in that way, the priest would go in, you have these moments where on on our behalf, he would go, the priest would go. And that was symbolic for the fact that God was dwelling with his people in the camp of Israel. Isn't that awesome? Wherever they went, they pitched the tent. That was symbolic of the fact God was with them. You'll see that? Later in Israel's history, there was no longer a need for the tabernacle, this portable tent. It was a temple that was built. 
You remember that? I believe it was, what, 967 B.C.? The first temple was constructed. It was in David's heart, but he put the work in Solomon's hands, and this temple was built. And when the construction was done, the glory of God, the presence of God filled the what? Not the tabernacle now, but the what? The temple. And the temple is the metaphorical dwelling place of God. If you want to meet with God, well, you could, but you go to the temple, and that's where God's presence was, right? The priest would go in, and you know all the details of that. So God was with his people. No longer is there traveling because now they have a nation. They're established. They're in one place. You go to the temple. Now, fast forward, 5 B.C. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. And the word was God. Who's the word? Who's the logos? Was well, Jesus the son. Notice that in John's gospel, John doesn't begin with a birth narrative. Right? He doesn't talk about Mary and Joseph and all of that stuff. It just says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, the verb there can be translated as, and he pitched his tent among us. Think tabernacle. Now, Jesus. God came down not to be with us in a tabernacle or temple, but in flesh. In Jesus dwelt the fullness of deity in bodily form. So in the first century, come on, if you want to go meet with God, you don't go to the physical temple, right? Where would you go? You wouldn't go sit at the temple. You'd go sit at the feet of Jesus because in him the fullness of God dwelt. And isn't it amazing that there were Jews still going to the temple and some of that was still in place in terms of the, uh, the, the apparatus of the temple as a place of prayer and such, but they're, they're going to one place to experience God, but God was right there in front of them in the person of Jesus, Right? But they passed right by Jesus going to the temple. But Jesus like, hey, <laughs> you know, I am God. And I'm here to dwell with my people and to ransom my people. My name is Emmanuel, God with us. You see how that works. Tabernacle, temple, Jesus. And then Jesus says, I'm going to the Father. But the paraclete, the Holy Spirit's going to come. And he's going to be with you and he's going to dwell. And then Paul comes along in 1 Corinthians and says, because Jesus went to the Father and gave the Spirit, now you are the temple of the living God. Not just you individually, but we as the, as the people. Come on, that's good. In us, in this place, not in the building, but in this, in this gathering, God dwells here. You see that? He's with us. He's our God. We're his people. So, tabernacle, temple, Jesus, the church. And all that's awesome. But, well, we end with Letter G. <laughs> because the aim is not us going to heaven, but heaven coming to the earth. So that all things up there become reality down here, so to speak. Let's finish with this. And I saw no temple in the city. Why? You don't need a physical temple. You don't need a tabernacle. You don't need this. You don't need that. And when the new heaven and new earth comes. For, look, for its temple is who? The Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb, and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God. The what, what, what does that mean? We talked about it earlier. The what? The glory of God. We, we can translate it as the brilliance, the importance, the, the heaviness of the person of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. By its light, the nations will walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and, the, and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. They will bring into it 
the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, uh, of life, brightest crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life. See that? Huh? Y'all read that somewhere else? The tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. And this is the goal of all creation for the redeemed. Verse 4. And they will see his face. Moses said, show me your glory. And God basically said, you can't handle, you don't even know what you're asking for. My glory? Who said it? What? He said, I'll show you my yeah. And God placed Moses in the cleft of the rock. You read the story? And what did God do? He passed by and he showed him his backside. What does that mean? I have no idea. <laughs> you can see this, but you can't see this. And I think it's a way of speaking, of saying, you can see part of who I am, a measure, but the fullness? Are you kidding? Show you my glory. If I showed you all of my glory and with you in that mortal body were to see the fullness of my glory, you would melt or be vaporized like a wax candle before the brightness of the glory of God. But you see, you say, what does that mean here? Well, we have glorified bodies here, right? 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Thessalonians 4. We have resurrected glorified bodies, new indestructible bodies that can See and behold the glory of God, not just once, ah, see his face, but throughout all eternity long. He gives you a body to withstand the greatness of his person and power. That's why you have a glorified body, to see his face. Moses didn't get to see, literally, the face of God. Moses didn't get to see it at this point, but there's coming a day at the end when we're all going to see God face to face. And whatever that means, I don't know, but I cannot wait until it happens. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light. And they will reign forever and ever. You won't need lights like we have. You don't need the sun at this time because you have the S-O-N. You don't need the S-U-N. You have the S-O-N. And he is the temple, and we will dwell with him forever. You see, this house motif is all through Scripture. God's building a house, creation, the falls, redemption, finally the restoration. You ever restored a home? You ever restored something? How exciting is it once you're done? Look at what I put my hands to. Look at what I've done. Well, man, there's coming a day after it's all restored, it's all made new. God's going to look at us at his prized possession and say, man, I did a good work in my people. What a wor- How glorious is our God. The house has been restored. 
fellowship will be restored. And so we'll be in the presence of God forever and ever and ever and ever, and it will never end. Think about that. Not up there, but this will be made brand new.